At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I, I deserve to be repaid. I deserve compensation. I deserve a lot of different things, but more importantly than anything else, I'm happy that nobody will ever have to go through this again. But the fight's not over. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode is with former big leaguer Chris Colabello. My goal with the show is to get unique stories on for every episode, and this one is as unique as they come. I'll be quick. It's a pretty long episode, but for those who are unfamiliar, Chris went undrafted out of Division II Assumption College, spent seven years playing in indie ball, was BA's indie ball player of the year in 2011, caught on with the Twins, then spent time in the big leagues with the Twins and the Blue Jays over the next couple of seasons. Early in the 2016 season, Colabella was handed an 80-game suspension for a PED called DHCMT and then spent the next six years fighting to clear his name, along with other players who received similar suspensions seemingly out of nowhere. It's a really interesting story with a validating ending. Highly encourage listening to this one all the way through. Chris was extremely generous with his time. Very grateful that he walked me through his career in baseball. It is a, it's an extremely thoughtful look back. Uh, I, as a Twins fan, as everyone listening to this probably knows, it was it was a real treat to have Chris on, have him take the time. So hope everyone enjoys it. Uh, episodes of Phenom at the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Go check out past interviews, and if you haven't yet, leave a five star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. This is going to be the last episode of Phenom before the draft. Head over to the website for draft rankings, mock drafts, all that good stuff, and check out other stuff on the pods, future projection. 90th percentile the main ba podcast feed is going to be having the new hot sheet podcast up a lot of good stuff there and with that let's talk to chris calabello joining in for today's episode from phenom to the farm he's a former big leaguer out of assumption college chris calabello chris thanks so much for joining me on from phenom to the farm it's my pleasure man thanks for having me I've been looking forward to this for a while. I think is uh, I've, I've made it pretty clear to the listeners over the past three years or so. I was a uh, I am a, a pretty big Twins fan, so been looking forward to this. But uh, before we get into it, tell me about what you are doing now, kind of uh, post playing days uh, with Pelotero. I am currently uh, myself and Bobby Tewksbury, my swing consigliere, uh, best friends, uh, brother, whatever you want to call him. Um, we had been thinking about how to scale professional coaching for quite a while right uh after bobby threw the home run derby to donaldson and the the story is pretty well documented about my swing changes and you know the book swing kings that jared diamond wrote uh we had always been thinking about okay how do we scale this right because to most people's uh lack of understanding or knowledge the day after he threw the home run derby he had 700 clients who potential clients who wanted to work with them because i think that was the the true day of validation of what him and I had, had done together and certainly what he had done and, and really mastered on his own. Uh, and 700 emails when you're a one man show is pretty daunting. So uh, we started piecing together the ideas then. And then finally, I think 
as I was wrapping up in 2019, little did we know that we'd get hit with a global pandemic and a lack of uh, baseball jobs being presented to me uh, in terms of hitting jobs because I, I don't think I was ready to quite coach yet. Uh, we decided we were going to go out and raise a little bit of cash and uh, we kept getting pushed by some really good business mentors and advisors that we have. And so Pelotero was born. Uh, and since then, it's been a lot of development. And, and basically what we do is we collect data and, and try to make it actionable. Um, again, scale professional coaching. So we've, we've tried to put our brains into algorithms and, and really be a source to not just accrue data and report it. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but certainly to be able to make it a little bit more leverageable for the amateur space, uh, you know, obviously in the big leagues, they have 30 person analytics teams that can break down the data and, uh, really use it as identifiers for players. But for us, it's more about allowing the data to be actionable for athletes so we can accumulate data from any source and ultimately develop custom training programs for athletes. It's an exciting project. And I think, um, you know, kind of a theme of this show, I guess, for the past couple of years has been with a lot of guys, it's, it's kind of, how do you, how do you transition out of athletics or out of, out of your playing days? And I, I have read some stuff recently. I know that I, I'd imagine you take BP a little more often than your typical quote unquote retired guy, but, um, it, it's, it's cool that you found a way to, to transition that, um, you know, that, that career into, uh, you know, your, your baseball career into something kind of tangible and and post baseball, but let's, let's go all the way back kind of to your upbringing, how you, you know, how you got here, uh, your, your relationship with baseball as an amateur, you, you know, your dad played at a high level, played for the Italian national team. Um, and then you kind of split time a little bit during your youth in Italy, where, you know, when did, when did you first build a, a love and appreciation of baseball? Like when did you know that baseball was something you wanted to do long-term? I think from as early as I can remember, right. My, uh, my mom to this day shows me pictures of myself in the crib, uh, when I was a year old, basically with a bat and ball in my hand. So, uh, I remember my dad asked me, I remember pretty vividly when I was five years old, my dad asked me, you know, if I wanted to pitch or play the field, cause he was a, he was a pitcher. So I said, dad, I want to play the field because in the American league pitchers don't get to hit. So, um, I, I always had hitter in my veins, even though he was a, a pretty good left-handed pitcher himself. And I just, uh, it's all I ever wanted to do. There was never anything else. Certainly over time, I think I grew other passions and desires to want to try other things, but baseball always kind of superseded all of it. And, uh, yeah, I was just lucky enough to turn it into a career. As you got into high school, what was, what was your player profile? Like if you were scouting yourself, you know, <laughs> freshman through senior, cause like you're a guy who eventually raked in the big leagues, you raked in the minors, you raked in indie ball, you raked in college. Were the signs there in high school or were you a little bit of uh, what we call a late bloomer? So I would say I always had hitterish qualities, right? I was very, I was very adept at understanding how to not make outs. And what I mean by that is I hated making outs. So uh, the way I, I joke about it is I liked left turns instead of right turns. Right. And I think I, I caused myself a ton of anxiety and probably anger and frustration when I was a kid. Uh, but ultimately it led me to a place where I, I learned how to manage those emotions, those, I guess, you know, dark moments 
and really figured out how to survive, I think, the most challenging part of the game, which is dealing with failure. Uh, you know, you hear it, see it. I'm sure you've talked to a lot of guys who continue to tell you, like, the mental side of the game is the most important. So to give you my full scouting report, I was a six-foot-two fungo, basically, who uh, had no pop, um, and I could just always hit a little bit. But even that being said, I – started my senior year in high school six for 36 um, because I was putting so much pressure on myself to be successful and really I think overcome the fact that I was a year young for my grade uh, which didn't help certainly uh, where other guys had, had matured physically I was I graduated at 17 years old and uh, I was playing with guys that were in their 19 year old season and there was definitely some physicality that was lacking uh, so I was just always a baseball player. I think um, a guy that, you know, if you watch me play for a month and I, I think I said this to JJ Cooper when, when uh, baseball America named me the independent player of the year. And I was talking to the scout from the Diamondbacks after that article came out, I said, I'm the type of person you got to watch play for a month. You can't watch me play for a day there. I don't do anything that jumps off the page, right? I don't throw it harder than anybody else. I certainly don't run faster. I don't throw it harder and I don't hit it to the moon. So I think I had to kind of swim upstream by playing uh, like a little bit, I guess, uh, above my skis. And because of that, and, and I talk about this with young hitters all the time, I learned how to hit first and then I learned how to swing and hit for power later. Uh, and I think that was a, a pretty big advantage because if you can't hit a homer in high school, I had zero high school home runs. Uh, you know, you got to figure out other ways to get hits, especially if you don't like making outs. So uh, I, I don't know if that's a good scouting report, but that's what I got for you. I don't usually have things in common with uh, with guests on this podcast, but also zero high school hormones over here. You and me, just the same. Yeah. Um, so being a guy who has to has to swim upstream isn't, you know, knocking the cover off the ball in high school, putting up these these no doubt numbers. It's, it's not like with, with guys who are, high school stars, it's kind of an obvious thing of college ball will be there for them, probably at a high level. You know, like the, a lot of times the best player in a college team has a couple or a best player in a high school team at least has a couple offers somewhere Were you no doubt wanting to play baseball in college because attending a small school, you, you pass on some potential things. I played at a division two school. You do miss out on a lot, not being at a, you know, the, the big state school or whatever, yeah. whatever it might be. So were you, were you dead set on, I'm going to play no matter, you know, no matter what level. There was no doubt in my mind, I was going to play college baseball. Uh, it was just a matter of where, right. So I, I had, I had, I started getting, and the landscape was, was very different. Let me say that. Uh, the landscape was incredibly different then, right. The, the recruiting process, the, the entire, way things were done was completely different right it was your junior year was really your recruiting year uh until the end of my junior season i didn't even start sending videos to colleges like nobody knew who you were if you played at milford high school unless they just happened to catch you on the right day and so i knew i could play and it might have been a division three or division two but more than anything i hadn't blossomed physically yet like i played my junior season at 16 years old and then i played american legion that summer and didn't i got 22 at bats because we had a team of older guys that was kind of loaded so um I just always knew that I could make the adjustments that I needed to make and 
I could grow into my body. So I just kept going. And I, I said, if it's at division two and it needs to be a division two, because I want to go in and play. Cause if I don't play, I'm, I'm not going to get better. So, um, the division one opportunities were like a little bit more scattered. Uh, it was really a three horse race for me. It was between Eckerd college who even that I felt like was kind of a stretch because you look at the Florida programs for, as a Northeast kid and you go, well, they got to be better than me. It's Florida. Uh, and then really Babson college and assumption college were kind of the two up here. Cause I said, I might as well just pick one division two school and one division three school that kind of fit the profile of places that I may think I want to go, you know? And what made, what made assumption the pick? Yeah. So uh, assumption seemed like it combined the best of all the world for me. Right. In, in the sense that I, I was being probably the most heavily recruited to go there, meaning uh, the head coach at the time was a guy named Jim Vale. And he made, he was adamant about getting me and my high school teammate. Um, and again, the internet was like in its early days, nobody really tracked division two baseball. And all I knew about assumption college was that I, at, like my junior year in high school, they had played for the conference championship, something. Oh, well, they're, they're pretty good. You know, I don't know anything about Franklin Pierce or Southern Connecticut or Mass Lowell and assumption kind of met the criteria academically too, where it was a good enough school because I, I graduated seventh in my high school class. I was, I guess, relatively smart. And really I tell people I was just good at figuring out how to get good grades more than I was smart. And I guess maybe you call one the other, but I, I never necessarily thought of myself as uber intelligent. Didn't think of myself as an Ivy league kid. I was probably on the cusp of being considered that, but at the same time, I didn't know if I could go to the Ivy league and play baseball. So I was trying to blend all those things, knowing that really baseball was going to be my focus um, and not create an academic load that would destroy me. Um, and then combine that with the fact that, you know, I wanted a, a social structure that was really a, a contained campus. And, uh, you know, I, I got to play at Assumption College and I saw, oh, well, I played some summer ball games there. And I was like, man, this field's kind of cool. Like, you know, you can hit homers here instead of my high school field where the fence was 432 feet away in left center field. So that had something to do with my zero homers in high school, by the way. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was a place where I felt like, and, and this was the question I had to answer. It was a place where I felt like, you know, if baseball didn't work, I could see myself going to school and living a social life there. And, uh, certainly being close to home helped. Um, I think coming out of high school, I was a little bit more scared of the unknown, uh, worried about where I stood in the game and, uh, how quickly my physical maturation would happen. So, I knew I was going to get a chance to go in and play right away at Assumption. I think that ultimately became the, 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 the Trump card, right? Like I started my senior year so badly that I was thinking to myself like, man, if I can't hit at Milford high school, how am I going to hit it at Eckerd college or at, you know, the university of Maine or UMass would come in kind of late into the picture. Uh, so Assumption it was, and that, that didn't go all peachy keen. Like it kind of looks in the numbers. Uh, so that's another story though. I mean, roll me into that then, because you end up, you have a stellar career at Assumption. It, it looks like you're one of those, you know, one of those diamonds in the rough who, you know, doesn't get picked up out of high school by, by a big school and then thrive somewhere else because they have this opportunity to play. Was, was it not as, as the numbers seem? Like how long until you went from 
dude with some some hitting tendencies who was up and down in high school to a uh, a masher in college. So I went into assumption and and what really the transition was my American Legion season that year, right? So I'm playing what would be normally my traditional junior season for most guys because it's my 17-year-old summer and I start really like coming into my own and I'm I hit like 440, we went to the American Legion World Series, played actually into the start of our fall ball with our Legion team because we went so far in uh, the national tournament. And I really felt like I was, I, had, I, I think when I decided to go to Assumption, I finally relaxed in my senior season, start, stopped putting pressure on myself to, to perform for all the stupid reasons that didn't matter. And then my Legion season kind of was this, this coming of age, right? And so I went into assumption thinking, man, maybe I sold myself short, right? Like maybe I should have gone to Eckerd, maybe I should have done this. And I, in that regard, I also went in thinking, I'm a freshman who's going to play right away, and I'm the man, right? So you get a little bit of ego and whatever. And not only that, but then in my first at bat of fall ball, like my my roommate and I, my my teammate Andy Barlow and I came into assumption, and coach goes, hey guys, take a week off while we're practicing, and then just get hot, like you know, next weekend you've been playing so much and everybody kind of resented that us team, but they knew we were going to hopefully help the program. So then we take like the week and I'm just kind of hanging out of practice, not doing much. And then the first weekend of fall ball, my first, my, my, my roommate and teammate Andy in his first at bat leads off the game with a homer. And then I lead off the second game, the second inning with a homer. So I'm thinking to myself, man, this is going to be easy. I end up having a big fall, like raking, you know, feeling good. And uh, then came our, our daunted Florida trip. And, you know, I got a hit in our first game. So I'm, you know, feeling good and not, you know, not worried about anything. And then one for like 15 later, I, I, I'm in a, a frantic panic because who goes two for 18 as a freshman and stays in the lineup. But I was both eerily thankful and, uh, you know, also lucky enough that we didn't really have a lot of horses to run the race. And so he kept running me out there, right? So I, I ended up having a decent last day of the Florida trip. And then we came home, and as anybody that's ever played baseball in the Northeast knows, your first probably month of baseball games are in the freezing cold, and I had really never experienced that short of – I honestly don't know how you how you guys do it. Mm. Uh, it it's just, devastating. Just no way. Yeah, and <laughs> it, 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 became, it became par for the course, right, to come home and – for the first couple of weeks, you kind of grind it out and struggle through some, some tougher ABs and tougher weather days and you just got to manage it. Right. So I come home and I'm hitting like 270 after the Florida trip with no homers and 270 to me was like, you know, the end of the world. I, I thought if I was hitting 270, that meant I stunk. And uh, that just led me down a rabbit hole of worse, worse and worse. And then before I knew it, I get to the, you know, midway point of the season, we're probably 20, two games into the year and I'm hitting a buck 80 with no homers and he's running me out there every day. I'm down to like the seven or eight hole. Uh, and I sat one, I remember I sat one game of a double header and started like questioning myself and he put me back in there to his credit. And then, uh, finally I, I'll never forget this. We were at a double header at Southern Connecticut and, uh, he benched me for the, like the, the back end of the Saturday game and the front end of the Sunday game. And I was like, kind of pissed and finally I just you know for lack of a better term got my head out of my ass and I had a good day I went three for five I had my first home run and then uh before I knew it I started going a little bit but I got to the last weekend and it was we were going to we were playing at St. Rose and then home against St. Rose and I had two homers going on the last weekend of the year so I, I remember 
we went to St. Rose and I had a good doubleheader, got up to like 285 and I had hit a homer that day. And I told my dad, we were playing them at home. I said, dad, uh, I'm going to finish with at least five. And that's, you know, there's two games left. And he goes, yeah, okay. So uh, my first at bat of the doubleheader that day, I, I popped out in foul territory and the guy caught it over the fence. So my dad moved out to left center field and he was notoriously referred to as where's Waldo in my professional career. <laughs> Cause he was, uh, he was the guy that always moved if I had bad at bats. And uh, sure enough, the next at bat, I almost hit him with my first homer of the day. My next at bat, I almost hit him again with my second homer of the day. And then my next at bat, I almost hit him again with my third homer of the game. And I remember going between second and third, and I was kind of staring at him like, I told you so. And then uh, I hit another one in the back end of the doubleheader. So uh, I finished the year 302, seven homers. And uh, it was, you know, all in all, the numbers looked okay. But if you really look at how good our offense was, we couldn't pitch, but I was probably like sixth or seventh on the team in hitting, uh, second or third in homers. But uh, it, it turned out to be okay, and it led me into my Legion summer that year where I really, again, kind of blossomed. And then uh, I was humbled going into my sophomore year knowing that it was going to take hard work, effort, and energy to really be the type of player I wanted to be. And you built that into having a pretty standout career through your time at Assumption. I'm I'm personally just kind of a proponent of go where there's a spot, go where you can play early. Sitting on the bench is not fun. Um, and there's the the adage of, oh, if you're good enough, they'll find you, especially now in the you know, YouTube, social media, you know, whatever. Especially if you're like a pitcher. If you you're if your metrics pop up, you'll they'll take you. But it ended up not being the case for you, at least right away. But, you know, despite putting up those great numbers, but what from your time there do you see as, as a building block that you might have only been able to get during your time at Assumption College that then led to, to success down the road? Well, I, two things, right? My sophomore year, our conference decided to go to wooden bats, which I, I thought was going to be a pretty big challenge. I had never hit with wood with regularity. Um, I think that was a massive advantage for me. Uh, I had 500 at bats with wooden bats, if not more, if you count my summer ball where I, I got to hit with wood, like metal bats became a foreign object to me after my sophomore year. Um, and, you know, my junior year, I, so my sophomore year ended up being first team all conference, uh, 365, still hadn't really come into my own power wise. I only had five homers, but it was with wood. So I, I said, Hey, you know, that's, that's okay. Um, and you know, first team all conference as a sophomore, you feel pretty good about yourself. And then Going into my junior summer, I, you know, to your point, I, I was actually considering transferring. Uh, I was trying to get a summer ball job, couldn't get anybody to pull the trigger. And at the time, we didn't have the Futures League and we didn't have the, uh, you know, the leagues everywhere that have popped up. Really, for us, it was NECBL, NYCBL, the Cape, Coastal Plain, Northwoods and Alaska. And if you weren't in one of those six, you went and played San Mutual or whatever you had to play at home. So that summer, I'm begging and pleading to get on a summer ball team. And uh, I'm playing Cranberry League at home, which is like a glorified men's league with a bunch of college kids scattered in. And uh, in the second or third game, I ruptured my spleen. I got a collision. And I'll, I'll to this day, like, what a weird freak accident. I was diving for a ball. And um, I remember getting hit in the stomach. And I wasn't one to come out of games very often. Uh but this was different. I could tell it was different. And, you know, I happened to be, they had to kind of walk me off to the, to the dugout. And I wasn't even going to go to the hospital. Cause I was like, man, what a pansy. I got, you know, punched in the stomach. Like you don't go to the hospital. And I was describing this like pain in my left shoulder. And uh, one of our, our players, parents happened to be a, 
a, a surgeon or a doctor and he said you know just you should go get it checked like that that some of the symptoms he's describing might sound like internal bleeding and sure enough like three hours later i'm sitting in the er and i was feeling fine and and then all of a sudden they rolled me into x-ray and i passed out so uh long story long that moment kind of took baseball away from me uh i didn't get to play it all that summer I was jaded, but at the same time, hungry to get back. And my dad and I were talking about, you know, potentially redshirting the year because I I lost like the 20 pounds that I worked so hard to put on. And uh, I remember I came back for the last week in a fall ball and another Homer story. My friends joke with me that I always tell Homer stories. The last week in a fall the best ball. kind of stories. Yeah, because who doesn't like Homers? So um, the last week in a fall ball I play and, and sure enough, I hit a Homer in our in our last fall ball weekend. And I said, Dad, I think I can do it. But now that, that really takes transferring off the table, right? Because you're going to play your junior year and who's going to transfer their senior year? Like maybe, who knows? But, um, and I ended up really just understanding like what hard work was because my dad said to me, and I, I had, again, I was fortunate enough to have a pretty good GPA going into my junior year. And my dad says, uh, hey, if I have to, you know, if you're going to play, you need to commit. And he said, if you're going to choose between studying an extra hour or working out an extra hour, I don't think I need to tell you what to do. And I said, sold. And I, I really went into that season on a mission. Uh, and I, I, my junior year was definitely my best year. And then that translated into the NECBL summer where I thought I'd really put myself on the map. I, I, again, begged and pleaded to get on a team and ended up being an NECBL all-star runner up for the MVP. And playing with guys like Andrew Bailey and, uh, you know, a bunch of dudes that ended up either getting drafted or getting to the big leagues. And, you know, Andrew Bailey was my teammate. Blake Lolly got to the big leagues. Uh, there were some really, really talented players. Uh, Jimmy Negrich, who I ran into, you know, a bunch of years later in AAA. Um, Eli Org was in the league. Uh, gosh, I can't, I, I'd have to go through the list to figure out who, who got the big leagues, but certainly it was a pretty cool draft class. And, I excelled. And, and so it taught me just how to be resilient and deal with kind of like a lot of the curveballs that the game can throw at you. But, um, and then I had, I had offers to like potentially transfer. I'm not supposed to say that, so I won't throw anybody under the bus, but like they were, you know, not uh, necessarily with the waiver and stuff like that. And I, I, I finally chose to stay. We had gotten a new coach and, uh, my senior year was a little bit of a grind. We weren't a very good team, and uh, <laughs> it became pretty easy to not want to pitch to me because uh, we weren't very good. Uh, so I put too much pressure on myself in the first half. I kind of, you know, trudged through it, and then uh, I had a, a really, really big week one week when we had a, a lot of games. And I actually hit all my homers in that week for the year, and I finished the numbers again, looked okay. And, uh, again, having done what I did in the NCBL, I thought it was enough to get drafted, but uh, – it wasn't meant to be, I guess. Well, with that, obviously getting drafted, going pro in general from the lower levels, it's just it's it's more uncommon. Like I know on my college team, I would say ninety five percent of the guys were had had this mindset of I'm gonna enjoy this while I've got it. I'm gonna play baseball, and there there wasn't the quite the gunning for pro ball thing or the the not a certainty of the draft, but you know just like hey they're they're gonna come get me that that kind of thing a lot of like enjoy this while it lasts and then I'm done as your senior year was winding down. Did you, did you have a plan B? Did you think about life after baseball at all? I started taking job interviews. I, I was fortunate enough. Like one of my close family friends was a partner at Price Waterhouse Coopers. 
um, you know, went to the recruiting nights at school and all the financial firms like advisor fidelities and, you know, prudentials of the world asked me to interview. So I said, you know, if nothing else, it's a good experience, but I was, I was full send. I, I was getting drafted. I was getting letters from teams, you know, pretty regularly. I'd probably have been in contact or been to camps for, I don't know, 10 big league teams, but as the draft came closer, really it was Boston. Uh, and, you know, later on down the road, I, you know, I think back to all those times and how much I read into stuff and stuff that didn't matter. And, uh, but Boston invited me to the pre-draft at Fenway and I, I thought I performed really well. And that was the day that I thought I, I put the icing on the cake, right? Like it was just a, it was a formality at that point. Um, and Boston was going to take me and it was going to, I was going to be a Red Sox and, you know, what else would you want to do as a New England kid who grew up and you just watch your team win a world series for the first time in however many years it had been. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the other stuff was all in the back burner. It was just like a, well, you know, this isn't going to happen to me. And I, I just happened to be lucky enough. If you want to talk about stars aligning that, you know, the Worcester tornadoes were coming into existence. And I, I was like, I don't even know what independent ball is. I would read the newspaper and see Rich Gedman was managing and stuff like that. But, it wasn't, it didn't even cross my mind. Like I, I thought, again, I thought independent ball was like Stan Musial league. I didn't, I didn't really know because we had no way of knowing at the time. So yeah, I mean, it, uh, there was no, there was no scenario in which I saw myself not playing, but certainly I'm, I like to dot my eyes and cross my T's. So I, I made sure I at least took the necessary steps in the event that I, the unthinkable happened. <laughs> well, after, after you, you, I guess, listened to 50 long rounds go undrafted, when did the, the Wooster Tornadoes go from just this oddity you'd seen in the paper to a viable option? Yeah, it was uh, – the draft at the time was three – I think it was three days uh, or two. I can't remember. I think it was one through 18 the first day. Or, but the second – I knew it would be a second-day pick. I wouldn't be top 18 rounds. And I start hearing names that I recognize, guys I played against my conference, and I'm like, well, I'm better than him. I'm better than him. Like, I'm good, right? I'll, I'll be fine. And, you know, 25th round rolls around, and I'm, that's kind of what I was hearing from Boston. Uh, 30th round, 35th. And my dad's, like, attached to our dial-up internet. Nobody can call a house. There's people in my in my house. And it was, like, the 40th round when I just kind of, like, I was like, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm, I can't stay here and deal with this. Um and I remember my dad was like staring at the computer screen, like a, a probably more devastated than I was. I was pretty upset, but I, I just like, in, I guess I left the house. I get a call from uh, my college coach, my first college coach. And he said to me, he goes, Hey, if you don't get drafted, uh, the Worcester tornadoes are interested in working you out. And I said, okay, like just have them call me or whatever. And I was, you know, still pretty devastated again. Didn't think much about it. I thought maybe a, you know, minor league free agent, whatever, like something would come up. And, you know, the next day I, I talked to this hitting coach uh, of the Worcester Tornadoes who had been a, a coach at Quinn Sigmund College, which is a little Juco in Worcester. And he said, hey, we'd really like to work you out in the next couple of days, you know, barring you get a free agent offer. And I was like, sure. Um, and there I was, this like angry guy who, you know, thought, you know, I kept hearing, well, you don't hit for enough power as a first baseman. And I was like, okay, cool. So now I'm trying to go to these workouts and hit balls to orbit. And uh, it, it happened quick that I ended up going to a workout for the tornadoes. And 
you know, I, I went to take VP and I remember meeting Rich and I'd met him once when I was a little kid. He certainly didn't remember. And uh, he had hit me like 50 ground balls and 50 pop-ups at first base because there's a story behind it that actually connects me to where I'm sitting right now, which is completely ridiculous. Um, the first baseman at the time was a guy by the name of Jeremy Booth. Jeremy is the president and CEO of New Balance Future Star Series, who Pelotero, my company, is, has a partnership with. And uh, Jeremy was kind of banged up and so on and so forth. And so, uh, and our second baseman couldn't catch a pop-up. He could hit, he couldn't catch a pop-up. So he hit me like 50 pop-ups and I'm like running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And finally he says, okay, let's go hit. And right away he goes, you know, hit and run. And I'm like, I'm letting it eat. I don't care. And I hit a ball in the street and like, and he kind of just stares at it like, you know, annoyed. Uh, second one, he goes, get him over. <sighs> Pull side home run to the street again. And I'm feeling good about myself. My first two swings, I went deep and everybody's saying, I need to have power. I'm like, here, I'll show you my power. And, you know, we proceed to take maybe 30, 40 swings that round. And I hit, I don't know, 18 homers um, because all I was trying to do was drop and drive. And um, every pitch he threw, he just looked a little bit more and more annoyed. <laughs> and uh, he came up to me after we picked up the balls and he's like, uh, can you do me a favor? And I'm like, yeah, sure. He's like, can you hit a line drive to second base? And I was like, Sky, like, is he on a crack? Like, I just took the best BP of my life, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." So I walked back, and now all of a sudden, I start hitting, you know, one hop line drives to second. He's like, "I got a very nice swing," and that was the first aha moment I ever had with Rich Gedman, where he, I took this whole round, and you know, he 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 dropped a line on me. Like, I've seen plenty of guys that can do what you did your first round, and I don't know most of their names, and most of them never made it to the big leagues. And he goes. I haven't seen many guys that can do what you did your second round. Uh, I know all their names and most of them are in the hall of fame. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so that was like my first Gettyism, as I like to call it. And, uh, you know, I think he had told me, you know, look, we have this situation right now. We're going to make a move here soon. It's just a matter of time. So just stay by your phone, probably a couple of weeks. And so four days later, I, I got a call and they said, Hey, meet, uh, you know, meet the third base coach at, at the field. He's going to drive you to New Haven. You're going to be, you're going to sign your contract. And I said, okay. And in the meantime, I was balancing all those job interviews that I had kind of done. And, and I, you know, as soon as I hung up the phone, I said, yeah, I need to wear spikes still. So um, there I went. That kind of brings me into something I was curious about the, um, you know, the, the get him over, get him in aspect of BP and Gedman being in on that with talk about on the show a lot, the, the adjustment for a guy coming from like high school, or especially a guy coming from college, going to affiliated ball where it's development over winning. It's about, you know, getting your numbers, working on yourself, getting, getting to that next level. And you know, the, the pressure to perform in that regard with, you know, kind of on the flip side, indie ball, they're, they're there to win these guys. The team has to win or they'll find someone else who can help them win. What, what's the, the professional pressure to win versus like amateur ball, college ball. Yeah, I was uniquely blessed to go the path that I did. And I tell people that all the time. They look at me like I'm nuts. And I got to be part of a championship team that first year where, to a man, and this is all due to Rich's leadership, uh, we all had the best year of our careers to that point. Now, obviously, a couple of us were young and hadn't really had many experiences before that. But it, it, we made winning a focal point, And it was the most fun I ever had until I went and played, you know, in the ALCS in Toronto. And... Uh, we were tight knit. The culture was great. 
Like we learned that the only things that were important were the things that we could control, show up on time, be a great teammate, you know, work your butt off when you're at the field. And, and you didn't have to worry about your job. You didn't have to worry about getting released or moved or whatever it was. And it was so freeing. It was like really this, this perfect blend of, of, Hey, we're going to play hard and we're going to kind of change the way they do things here because notoriously that league had been like a, as Rich likes to call it, a softball league where, you know, guys hit 20, 30 homers and nobody ran hard because, you know, you're just kind of hanging on for dear life in any ball. But there were some talented guys and uh, it, the, the beauty was it didn't matter what round you got drafted in, what your signing bonus was. And I, I went in a little bit naive too. I was, you know, I was, I was pissed off at the world. I was still the angry kid that didn't get drafted and wanted to tell my sob story until one of my teammates called me aside and kind of said, he's like, Hey, you complain a lot. And I'm like, what? And he goes, every guy in this room's got a story, man. Look around. That guy's been to the big leagues, got 10 at bats, doesn't have a hit and never got a chance to play again. This guy's been a triple A, this guy's been a double A. And it was a rude awakening, man. It was, uh, I got humbled quickly in, in the right times. Um, and, and so that helped me understand. And, and, and then that led to my second Gettyism because I wasn't playing a whole bunch when I first got there and I was three for 20 to start again, still trying to hit balls into orbit and prove to the world that I deserve to get drafted and pulled me aside one day when I'm walking in the clubhouse and he's, he says, uh, what's going on? And I just like nothing you. And he goes, no, what's going on? And I'm, I'm like, I, I, he said, what's up? And I said, I don't, the sky, like, I, I don't, what do you want me to say? And uh, he, he, he said to me, he goes, you know, the guy I'm seeing out on the field every day isn't the guy that I saw at the workout. It's not the guy that I know is in that, in that body. Um, you're trying to be somebody that you're not. And then he, he said his famous line, what you have is good enough. He goes, you need to just go out and play. I don't know why you didn't get drafted. I don't know why you didn't get the opportunities that, you feel like you deserve but this is an opportunity to play and 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 be part of something bigger than yourself and you know at first I resented the statement and I just thought nothing of it and then I'm shagging balls out in the outfield and so maybe he's right and ironically enough a guy got hurt that night and the next day I was in the lineup and then I never came out <laughs> I broke up a no hitter the first night and uh we were off to the races so it was uh Really just, I, I mean, I have all these like aha moments, these defining moments for me that nobody would really even know and probably doesn't pay attention to even when I tell them. But uh, certainly guys like yourself, I think, appreciate hearing them. So it's cool to, to tell them every now and then. And you parlayed that into a 929 OPS in, in 51 games that first summer. Did you think at that you're 21 years old or that you, you know, did you think affiliated ball is calling soon? after putting up numbers and especially doing it season after season after season. For sure. I was this naive 21 year old kid who just thought like, yeah, somebody was going to pay like, right. It was like one more stick for the fire. It was look what I did. You're going to come get me. And ironically enough, it, it, it kind of did. Right. I, 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 I felt like I, I had a pretty good year based on, you know, the limited volume that I had and, you know, the only thing I still had to prove was that I could do it for a full season, but certainly I thought I had done enough to establish that I could do it at a high level. Cause probably a knock on me was that I played in division two and nobody knew if the talent level matched up. And certainly in any ball we're facing triple a double a arms every night, whatever it was. And so I get a call from the Red Sox. I was working out with team Italy for the WBC and I was very aware that I couldn't make the team 
but I, I was invited to the workouts and I said, yeah, any opportunity to be out on the field's great. So I was down there in Florida and Boston called again and they, it just happened to be uh, uh, Ray Fagnant, the Northeast scouting supervisor, asking me if Team Italy had a bullpen catcher. And I said, yeah, Johnny Franco brought his guy. And he said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm hanging out in, in the Tampa area. He goes, come to Fort Myers tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm in Tampa with no car. How am I going to get to Fort Myers? He's like, well, some of your teammates from last year are coming. They're coming from St. Pete. Call them. So I call these guys. I end up going down to work out. And I had a probably what was my best workout ever in front of scouts, uh, even better than Fenway. Um, I threw from different positions. I hit really good BP. I did everything probably to the best of my ability. And uh, they called me aside after the workout. They had me hit extra with the catchers. And they said, hey, listen, we're really sorry we didn't sign you. Like, we're draft you. Like, we made a mistake. Like, we want you. Uh, and I was like, that's great. Like, you know, no harm, no foul. You know, I'll, I'd love to be a Red Sox. And, you know, what's what's the process? And they said, just give us a couple of days. We'll figure out where we're going to send you, where you kind of fit into the plans because we want to send you somewhere where you can get ABs. So I, I kind of go home thinking, I did it. I'm signing with the Red Sox. And, you know, a day goes by, two days go by, three days go by, and I'm just sitting there like, what the heck? Like, what happened? And we had had five guys sign from our team that year. So I thought it was like a normal thing to sign on indie ball. And uh, finally, as a call comes, I was at dinner with my buddies and um, Ray <laughs> says to me, he goes, Hey, and I'm like, finally. And he goes, no, go work out for the tigers tomorrow. And I said, what? He said, yeah, they're having a workout. You got to go to it. They, I told them all about you. We're dilly dallying over here. Just put some pressure on these guys. And I'm like, all right. So I go to this tigers workout and I wasn't very good that day. And it was like a big open tryout type thing. And, I was even annoyed that I had to be there and uh, you know, it was a very whatever day for me. And then at the end of it, they're like, Hey, we want to sign you. I was like, what? And it just completely the antithesis of what I thought was supposed to happen at one of those. And uh, they signed me on the spot and I called Boston. I was like, Hey, I want to sign with you. They're like, just take it and go like, don't let these guys fool around anymore. So I signed and I stayed at spring training and then, Little did I know that Wilkin Ramirez, who would eventually be my uh, future teammate in Minnesota, uh, was coming back off a broken hand. And when he came back, they said, hey, uh, Glenn Azell said to me, hey, Haas, uh, you know, we didn't know if this was going to happen or not, but we don't have a spot for you. So last day of camp, they cut me and back to Worcester I went. So so was that the – were you like ticketed for like low A or high A? Like is that what they, they had signed you for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought – it was going to be one of those two. I was predominantly in the high A work group with, you know, the possibility of going to West Michigan or Lakeland, depending on where I fit. I mean, I was still, you know, 21 years old at the time or just turned 22, I think. Uh, yeah, I graduated 21, just turned 22. So, um, you know, one of those would have made sense. And, uh, again, I, I didn't think team signed guys and then cut them before they came a chance. So, uh, deer in headlights moment where it was like, oh, you got to go in and, win a job because they don't have anything invested in you so i learned a lot on the fly and certainly after having it had having it happen the first year i said all right well i'll go back and i'll do it again and somebody else will sign me in um every year it seemed like i was getting invites to these workouts that ultimately really didn't mean anything because i think i said it to you before probably before we started i was the kind of player you needed to watch for a month you couldn't watch me play for a day if you watched me play for a day i probably wouldn't do anything to to jump off the page. But I think if you watch me play for a month, you'd figure out pretty quickly that I was going to put together pretty professional at bats over and over again. And 
um, certainly had some power that I hadn't really discovered or understood yet. And um, yeah, the tough thing about those tryout camps and signing from independent ball is, you know, they want the guy that jumps off the page. So um, I never was that guy. I never will be that guy. I, my greatest tool is my brain. I said that to people all the time. Um, and I know that's not on the list, but uh, I certainly knew it to be true of myself. And how much were you banking there in those years in Worcester? <laughs> like how much, how much went in, how much work went in outside of baseball to keep this dream alive? So my first year I signed and I remember uh, they said, you're gonna make $750 a month. I was like, man, I get paid to play. <laughs> And then you'd realize pretty quickly that, you know, when you're paying for gas, living at home 30 minutes away from the stadium, 750 disappears relatively quickly. And then that off season, uh, Worcester magazine asked me to do like a photo shoot and be the cover person because they were doing a story on people and how much they make. And so this, this like free publication <laughs> on the cover, they put Chris Calabello, professional baseball player, $750 a month. And <laughs> I, I remember oh I was God, like, I hope you have that. Like, I hope you still have that somewhere. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of my buddies made like spoof, like posters from it with the, you know, the Polaroid or whatever. And I remember thinking to myself like, this can't help my dating life very much. Um, oh no, you're, but, you're the, you, you turn into the least eligible bachelor in Worcester at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I went from seven fifty at the lowest. Uh, I think my last year I made, I think it was like 2,100 a month um, for four months, which, you know, a, totals 8400 so every off season was you know hustle uh I, I was lucky enough and this is why i tell people i was blessed like rich gedman is a local guy and i i followed that guy like i was a little wounded puppy that needed his owner um any opportunity i had to be around him do clinics lessons camps whatever if he said jump i, I was there like it didn't matter how far i had to drive and you know before i knew it i had built this like little you know, client list that afforded me to be able to make more money in the off season than I did during the season. And it took a couple of years. Right. And the first year I had to like substitute teach and work some birthday parties and stuff. But before I knew it, I, you know, I would get to peak season for baseball lessons and, you know, you can do 800 to a thousand bucks a week. And it was, you know, it was great because I got to be around the game and hitting facilities and, uh, I, I feel like I learned just as much by teaching other people the game and, uh, as I did by practicing it and playing it myself. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was lucky. And, and the beauty that came with it, it was anytime I did anything rich, we just had a tendency to jump into the cage and spend an extra two hours there. And, um, I probably owe him half my big league earnings because, uh, those hours were, uh, I think the, the, you know, they epitomize everything that I, I learned from him about how to be a pro. And I, I tell people all the time, I learned how to hit first and then I learned how to swing later and without get and, and the countless hours he put in with me and his mentorship, uh, I, I most certainly don't become Chris Caldwell, a major league player. And you mentioned, you know, living at home, being able to live at home, that being your, your home city, or at least a, a suburb of your home city, very few pro baseball players at, at any level, even in the big leagues, spend as much time playing and living in a city as you did over those, over those years in Wooster. Where did it being your home city benefit in terms of just being able to stick it out that long versus, you know, if you had gotten a job in Sioux Falls or somewhere like that out of, uh, out of college? huge huge part in all of it right it's a i mean it's a massive 
aligning of the stars you want to and ironically enough my the year i signed ended up being the year that they you know went defunct (laughs) um so i i was you know i was worcester tornadoes beginnings and worcester tornadoes ends basically uh it was a massive factor i i like I, I see so many players now that are that are chasing the journey as as guys out of college and wanting to go play indie ball, and they say to me like, "Oh, you inspired me" and stuff like that. And I say, "Guys, like I, I appreciate that you say that, and I, I certainly am uh, appreciative of the fact that you want to chase your dreams and things like that." But I was uniquely blessed, right? The opportunity to play close to home, and I, I always held kind of these three things like right in front of myself to say, okay, this I'll continue playing if, and the three things were one that I could afford it physically and financially. Right. And being close to home, a, I, I got to leave 20 tickets a night and I felt like the coolest kid on the block. Like people would come watch me and I loved people watching me, the inner ego, narcissist, whatever you want to call it. Like I got to play for my friends and family every night, which was like a little added kick in the butt, you know, throughout my career. Uh, so the, the fact that I could afford it and like, again, living at home, as much as I tried to get out of central Massachusetts playing baseball, I spent the better part of 15 consecutive years there, right? Seven in, in pro ball, uh, four in college and four in high school. And (laughs) I never left central mass really. So, uh, it was like this irony, I guess, you know, not irony, but maybe, uh, I don't know, weird irony, um, and try to get get away and go see the world and here you are and you know playing at fit and field where i played the high school state you know state semifinal game or whatever and uh yeah so that was the first thing was the the, the physical and financial which you know you build your client list because a little kid watched you play on the field and you know you get to do lessons for him in the off season and run chris colabello hitting camps and people know who you are and stuff like that so it meant a lot Uh, the second piece was that I felt like I was still getting better. And, you know, that was, I, I I really felt like that was true because I was a student of the game and I wanted to learn every day. And anytime I got an opportunity to be around guys that played the game at a higher level than me. And again, I revert back to another Gettyism was, you know, I've, I've been where you want to be. I've run this race already. I know where all the pitfalls and the, and the speed bumps are. If you just, if you hear me instead of just listening, if you hear me, if you let the messages soak in, I can help you, you know, make the, the, the pitfalls much shorter and smaller. So I was open ears, open eyes all the time. And the third and most important thing I think was that I was still enjoying myself and fun matters when you're playing a game that's incredibly stressful. Um, especially when you're trying to perform at a high level. Um, so yeah, that, that, that in totality, that was like, the biggest blessing, right? Even I got traded for half a season to Nashua, which, you know, was 30 minutes up the road, 40 minutes up the road. And and then eventually became a free agent, signed back in Worcester because Rich and I were able to kind of sit down and, and, and have a very loving conversation because I loved him. I just, I still, to this day, I tell him I love him all the time and I wouldn't be where I am without him. 2011, your, your numbers for your entire run in Worcester are great i think you you hit over 300 every year except one 
No, nope, I hit runs. 300. It says it says on baseball reference I didn't, but if you put those together cuz that was a split. If, oh, if you Just put it, FYI. Okay. Your your time, okay, your time in Wooster, you were under 300. You hit 288 in Wooster after getting traded, hit 318. Hit 318 for the playoff run. That's a that's no, a good uh half halfway halfway through the season I got traded to play for Butch Hobson. I hit 318 and 288 combined for 302. And I knew that. That's how sick I was. <laughs> I knew every day where i was standing so anybody that tells you they don't know what their batting average is because they don't look at their numbers they're lying so just so you know. i don't blame you i don't blame you but you're it's not just hitting you're drawing walks you've got pop and then in 2011 you hit 348 ba names you the the 2011 indie ball player of the year not not to toot ba's horn but after that season how did your life change just uh, just from that award oof, man that was uh you know, again, well-documented, the swing change. I kind of I, – I identified that there were some things that I wasn't doing that guys my size, stature, strength were doing, and I couldn't understand why. And then, you know, stubborn old Bobby Tewksbury comes up to me and says, I think I figured out what the best hitters in the world do. And, uh, you know, go out and have the year that I did. And I, I really felt like that was the first time I blended hitting and swing, right, hitting and mechanics, like the the, the art of swinging and the art of hitting, I put them together. And it, it, I felt like I had different tools in my belt at that point. And uh, I remember I get this call, and I used to follow J.J. Cooper's stuff all the time. Like any independent ball guy, we'd always go to that, you know, toward the back of the magazine and see who they wrote about, right? And uh, J.J. Cooper called me, and I was, I mean, just honored, revered, uh, all the words. Yeah, it was like, I, this can't be me. Like there's so many independent players across the country. And J.J. to this, you know, to this day him and i still chat from time to time and i thank him every time because that that mattered right so uh we stayed on the phone for about two hours and he said look chris there was you know another guy that i considered but this is a uh more as much a consistency and i hope you get an opportunity uh award as it is or or, or a naming of baseball american independent player of the year as it is anything else and for that i was incredibly grateful um Two days after the article came out, I remember uh, I get a call from the Diamondbacks, which, you know, I'd never spoken to the Diamondbacks in seven years. And uh, it happened to be the same scout who, a guy by the name of Mal Fishman, who had been around with a bunch of different teams. And uh, he says to me, he goes, why haven't you signed yet? And I said, <laughs> I said, I don't know, Mal, your guess is as good as mine. And he's like, well, it's got to be something. And he's like, did you ever commit a crime? Did you do this? Did you do that? And I'm like, Mal, like, you think if I, if I knew the answer, I wouldn't have done something about it yet. Like I said, you, you, you're good friends with Bill Buckner who managed in the league at the time. And obviously Rich Gedman managed me. I said, if you have any questions about me, probably ask him. And that's after we talked for like three hours. And uh, so he calls me back and he said, they had nothing bad to say about you. And I said, well, that's good. I'm glad. And uh, he says, well, we want to sign you. And I said, great. And he's like, you know, I'm not 20 going into my 28 year old season now. And, uh, it's double layer bust basically at this point. And I knew I could, I could do it. I, I really started to believe I was major leaguer. Like I, I believed it before, but now I knew it. Right. And uh, he says, uh, you know, we want to sign you. And I said, great, just send me a contract. I'll sign it. See you at spring training. And then one conversation turned into another. And then before you know it, it turned into, Hey, we'll come to this workout in Arizona in February. And I'm telling you, I've been to, I don't know, 10 of these things and every time it was the same song and dance right run the 60 throw from your position just very combine you know showcase type event 
I said, Mal, no offense. I said, I'm not going to do anything at the one day workout that you're going to see that you're going to fall in love with. I said, I, I, I don't want to come. It's just a waste of money for me. And he said, come on, well, you got to come. And I said, listen, I, I, you know, and at this point in time, I'd, I'd gotten a, uh, <laughs> I had an agent who's still my agent to this day and um, was more of a friend at the time who would call me and say, hey, I'm going to send some stuff out to a bunch of teams for you. And I was like, well, gee, thanks. Nobody's ever done that for me. And uh, I, I ended up getting this call from my agent and another friend of mine who actually introduced me to my agent. He coached in the Marlins organization. And a friend of mine had said to me, he pitched in AAA, went to Harvard. He says, um, hey, uh, I, I had a contact for every team except the Twins. So I sent out 29 things for you today. And I go, oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Like six hours later, my agent friend at the time calls and he goes, hey, uh, I sent out a bunch of stuff and I got a, a response from the Twins. They want to work you out. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not possible, right? Like he had 29 teams. This is the only team that he didn't have said, yeah, the farm director responded. They want to send somebody to you to work you out. And I said, wow, that's great. That's way better than going to a workout. Like, certainly I can do that. Um, so I, I told the Diamondback scout, I said, look, uh, you know, I have this thing kind of lined up. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'll let you know. Keep you posted. So, um, you know, my dad's really mad at me that I don't want to go to the workout. And it was the first time I cursed at my dad, 28 years old in my parents' living room. And I go, dad, I'm an effing big leaguer. I don't need them to tell me anymore. And, and like, I screamed it and he just kind of looked at me funny because he was mad. I didn't want to go to the workout. Um, two days later, fast forward, it's now been 10 days since I'd heard from the original contact from the twins and it's like January. So it's getting late. And, uh, I get a call from Boston Red Sox scout and he says, Hey, Chris, we're looking for a power bat, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what the heck does Boston want to do with me? They've blown me off for seven years. And he said, to go play in Italy. And I go, whoa, whoa, time out. I said, my dad played in Italy for nine years. If I want to go to Italy, I snap my fingers. They've been asking me to go over for, you know, five years now. And I said, but, I was like, do you know the Northeast supervisor for the Twins by any chance? He's like, yeah, I know John Wilson really well. Blah, blah, blah. I said, let me call him. So John called me like two hours later. He's like, hey, I'm going to be up your way in tomorrow. And he's like, can you, or two days or whatever, can, can we set up a workout? I said, yeah, sure. And the smartest thing I ever did in my life to this day I made sure Rich Gedman was there to throw me BP and, and hang out and that Bobby Tewksbury was there to hit me fungos and stuff like that. And I just got lucky enough that John Wilson's smart enough to know that he didn't think he knew more about baseball than Rich Gedman. So the whole time he basically just talked to Ged and really didn't even watch me do anything. And so, yeah, we're going to sign you. <laughs> and I joke around with him to this day where he goes like, yeah, what was I going to say? Rich Gedman told me you could play. <laughs> what am I going to say? No. And uh, the rest was kind of history. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Well, you finally get signed uh, and actually assigned to an affiliated ball club. You go out to the the now, I guess, defunct New Britain Rock Cats. W- what was different? What, what was the same about AA? And what is life like going from 
kind of like you said, you were talking about people in Wooster know you. You've been playing for this team forever. You're playing to win. You're the star player for that team. What what's that transition like when you you go into I guess the minor league development grinder? Yeah, first of all, I was terrified every day in spring training because the only thing the only experience I knew was that they cut me at the end. So I was like, well, I better come with it today. I better come with it today. And you know, regardless of my performance on the field, I did my best I could to to work hard and really be a, a veteran type presence. Even though I I wasn't necessarily an affiliated ball of veteran presence, and I knew that I was acutely aware of it. But slowly but surely, I kind of started to recognize that. I could be that veteran presence. And, and it was something that the manager was kind of asking of me, but I didn't really necessarily feel comfortable enough to do it yet because I was like, well, these guys have been here five, six years. And yeah, Aaron Hicks is 22 or 23 years old, but you know, he's been around here longer than I have, but every day kind of reassured me that, you know, I, I knew how to go about my business the right way. Um, so from that regard, it was very much the same, like the grind of, of playing. It was a little different. You have to, you know, go to team lifts and things like that, which was annoying because I really learned how to be a pro on my own. Uh, and I didn't like being told when I had to lift and when I had to do this and do that because I'm, I'm 28. I'm a man. I'm stop treating me like a kid. But at the same time, it was it was a good lesson. And it took me a little while to acclimate, I think. You know, at first, the only thing I knew was to go to the field and play. Like, I never sat on the bench. I, and I went through this with one of my college guys the other day who was asking me if you should take a weekend off. I was like, dude, in seven years, I missed, like, I don't know, 20 games because 13 of them were because I had a broken hand and seven of them were because I had a pulled hamstring. So that was it. So I, the rest of them I played. I just knew how to go to the field and be in the lineup. So it was weird on opening day when my name wasn't on the lineup card. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Uh so I kind of like, you know, eke my way through the first three or four games and like, I don't know, one for 15 fashion, trying to, you know, figure out a way to impress people every day and seeing brass coming into town. And that's a little weird. And then we went on the road and he tells me, he's like, hey, I'm going to hit you fourth and play it first every day. And that's really all you need to do for me. Like, you just let me know you believe in me and we're off to the races. And uh, I had a huge week. I, I won Twins Minor League Player of the Week. It was, I think, the second week of the season. Um, had a four-homer week, a uh, big homer in Portland to tie the game, then hit a double to win it, had two homers the next day. And, you know, now I'm starting to think, like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And then, uh, as like I said, the brass starts to come in, and you're like, oh, the GM's here, the assistant GM, the rover, this, that. And you try to impress them as much as you've impressed your teammates now. And I always had trouble with that part where, like, when I got to a new place, I wanted to – to show everybody right and it led me to uh what ended up being like a 250 april and like a probably a 190 may um but thankfully i i just produced enough to like not have them want to release me i had nine homers i think at the end of may which felt like i had none um and i was hitting 220 something and i'm thinking to myself like they're gonna cut me like they're just gonna release me and then finally like i kind of had my again, my aha moment after a couple months where I was like, you know what, if I'm going to go out, I'm just going to go out having fun and doing the things I've always done. And, you know, we were, I'll never forget this. We were in Altoona and the manager was asking me to have like a players only meeting. And I was like, what the heck am I going to say to these guys? They're not going to listen to me. And I went to lunch with, uh, at a friendlies across the street and we were facing, uh, Jeff Carson's on a rehab assignment that day. And I, I had a dollar left for my meal money and I won that angry bird stuffed pig in one of those crane machines 
And I, I brought the stuffed pig in. I closed the doors. I said, listen, everybody, we're playing like crap. Mm. Here's our meeting. This is going to be the rally pig. And I just trying to have fun, like bring fun to the clubhouse, right? And everybody kind of looks at you like you're goofy or whatever. But I said, you know what? No matter what I do today, I'm going to have a good time. So my first at bat, Karstens throws me this like big slow hook with two strikes. And I'm like, there's no way that's a strike. There's no way it's a strike. No way it's a strike. And it ends up being a strike. And I walked back in the dugout. I said, listen, boys, if he throws me that it again, I'm going to hit it over the fence. And everybody's looking at me like, yeah, whatever. Next at bat, 1-1, one, one, he flips it. Literally the Crash Davis thing. And I get it, right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I got him. I hit it really high. I'm like trotting down to first. The dude jumps into the second row and catches it. And I'm like, and I sprint into the dugout. And I was like, I told you mother, that I was going to hit that out. I just didn't know he was going to catch it. And everybody just kind of laughs, right? And so I ended up 0 for 4 that day, but I had fun. I just, I hit the ball hard twice and I was like, whatever. And the next day we're facing Garrett Cole, which, you know, theoretically is a bad matchup for anybody. And, you know, second at bat, get a base hit, drive in Hicksy third at back get another hit so i'm two for three off cole i'm like hey let's go boys come on and before you know it the rally pig's making its way through the line at the end of the game he's coming in the pine tar bag he's he's eye blacked up and everybody just kind of changed the way we played affiliated it was more like let's go like we're doing this together we might as well have a good time and try to win and you know slowly but surely from from june on i i kind of I just crept up and crept up and I finished the year. I think it was 284, 19 homers, 98 RBIs and ended up being a twins minor league all-star. And, you know, it was the first year of my career. I didn't hit 300 and definitely the year I was most proud of because of how I, how I did it. And, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had the first two months back because I would have, again, got my head out of my butt a little sooner, but uh, you know, it, uh, it did what it needed to do, right? It gave me an opportunity to go in the next year and be more comfortable going to AAA and knowing my surroundings a little bit more and kind of led to what ensued, I guess. And then spring training, you get lockered next to my childhood heroes, uh, Joe right Maurer and Justin Morneau. Right between them. So is, is being starstruck a thing when they're technically co-workers? And also, you're not, you're not a kid. You're not a 20-year-old in his first you know, in his first big league camp or in his first minor league, you know, spring training, it's you're, you know, you're almost 30. Yeah. It's, it's like hard to rationalize that they're like kind of the same age as I am. Like, I think Joe was probably a year older than me and and Justin, right. Maybe two years, I, I like right around the same age, maybe two years older, but I'm like walking around the locker room. Cause I, I get invited. I went to winter ball and that really helped kind of solidify what I thought was true. I had a big winter ball in Mexico and, um, you know, I'm looking around the locker room. I'm like, they, I, I literally thought I was like Willie Mays. Hey, so you want to reference another movie? I was like, shoot, I've been cut already. I can't find my locker. I'm looking in the corners. I'm looking everywhere. And one of my, the Jimmy Beresford, uh, Australian second baseman shortstop says to me, he goes, Hey, CC mate, you're right here. And I, I look over and I like, it says Mauer to the left and Morneau to the right. And I go, what in God's name are they doing? Putting my locker right there. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to talk to these guys now. Like, what the heck? Like, in, you know, MVP and, and batting champion. Like, what? Like, they just, there's not probably two bigger stars in the game at the time. Justin, you know, short of the concussion stuff, had been perennial MVP candidate, all-star, you know, all those things. And Joe certainly was, you know, Joe, he was the poster boy for Minnesota baseball and the best catcher in the game at the time. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, how am I in between these guys? And then little by little, you try to, like, rationalize that you belong and, you know, talking to him a little bit more every day. And Morney at the end of spring training gave me his number and we played in the WBC that spring. And 
<laughs> we played Canada and I, yeah, I had a big game against Canada. He goes, after my fourth hit, he goes, you know, just wait a little while before you take my job. Huh? <laughs> I, it's kind of, it's surreal to hear those things because I was always a fan of the game and certainly a fan of players. I think I became a fan of players more than teams as I got older. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they were Minnesota, right? They were the twins. And even when Morning got traded that year, it was like really hard to conceptualize the business of baseball and how, you know, everybody has a, an end date, right. In certain places. And, uh, but certainly to, to put a human name and share phone numbers with both of them is like still to this day, like I pinch myself, like the other day I saw Poppy at, at Fenway and, you know, he looks over Italiano and, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's mesmerizing, right. To like, there are certain guys, especially, and I don't mean to make it about David, he's a former twin, but there were certain guys that like kind of stood up above the game for me and, and, and David and Joe, I think, and even Justin to a degree did that for me. And, you know, taking ground balls next to him two years in a row, one on one year, one in the other was just, I still pinch myself. Like it's, it's kind of hard to believe. There's, there's kind of the adage of like, you know, picking stuff up from veterans and guys like that. Are there, as you're observing, like, are there things that you can pick up from a Joe Maurer or a Justin Morneau? Uh, you know, things that you can actually apply to your, to your own game at that point. Uh, Joe, especially, I think, because I, I think I profiled much more like him than I did Justin. Um, and it's weird to say that because, you know, as I kind of came into my own, I became more of an opposite field first guy. Um, I probably he was an atypical a... first baseman in, in right. a lot of regards. He didn't hit for much power besides that, that MVP year. Well, Joe was a hit first guy, right? And I think he was never going to compromise hit for power. And I think that's true of me too, um, in a, to a different degree altogether, because Joe did it at the highest level for a decade. You know, he hit 300 almost every year, I think. Um, but he used the other side of the field. And it was really like I, I was nervous to ask him questions almost, but I wanted to, cause I, I needed to like humanize him a little bit. Right. So, and, and they were both so humble and quiet that it was almost hard at times to like really start dialogue with him. But I would, I would pry at Joe from time to time. And uh, I'll never forget. I asked him like, we, you know, we had like, it was like one of those gauntlets, like you're running Verlander Scherzer. And I think Robbie Ray at the time it was 2014 and the, Robbie Ray had like a 0.5 Scherzer, Scherzer, Verlander, Verlander. And I, and I kind of looked at him and I was like, Joe, how the heck do you hit these guys? And he goes, CC, I don't. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? Like you're one of the best hitters in the game. Like, what do you mean you don't hit them? Like you hit 300 every year. He's like, yeah. He's like, I don't try to get hits off the good guys. It's like, I go to the field, like assuming I'm not going to get any hits against Scherzer. And then if I do, it's just a bonus. And that kind of like, it freed me up a little bit because you know, when I had to face Chris Sale like eight times my first year because we played the White Sox every other day, I felt like I was like, man, I, I got to figure out how to get hit, stay in lineup, and and I just made it bigger than what it was, right? Like, and I made I, I made sometimes I made the pitchers less human than they were, and it really didn't happen until like a little bit in 2014 before I hurt my thumb, and, and 2015 was really when I kind of just like. It was like, yeah, they're just pitchers. Like, they got to throw it over, and they're good. So if they get me out, like, who cares? And just go do it again the next time and see what happens. Everyone, like, especially once you get to AAA, everyone has a different story. There's, you know, first-round picks who are just 
taking a pit stop on the way up. There's ex big leaguers who are trying to get back. There's your, you know, your four A guys. There's the the career minor leaguers. Did you have awareness of how unique you were? Like any idea that if and when you got the call that your story might gain a particular interest? Uh, I mean, I was pretty aware of it. Like you know, uh, it was a it was a, I knew it was a big deal, right? Like it's cause it doesn't happen, right? Like nobody plays independent, independent ball for seven years and then gets to the big leagues. And I've always been like the weird one in those situations. So it didn't surprise me that I was going to be again. Um, and I think just the validation that I was getting from guys that like I was playing with who guys like Hixie and Chris Herman, uh, Liam Hendricks, uh, Kyle Gibson, Andrew Albers, like guys that I got to be pretty good friends with that, you know, ended up having pretty good careers for themselves. Like that I could see them respecting me. Uh, I could see them respecting the way I went about my business every day. Um, so that part, I, I think made it much more I, tangible to me that I was going to get there. And then the way I started in AAA, I was uberly confident. Like I knew the system, I knew the people and all I've ever said to people is I just need to know that you care and that you make me feel comfortable in my own skin. And I'm going to, I'm going to put together a pretty good year. Like that was my, that was my criteria for success. And, you know, now I have all those things in place and the manager in AAA Gene Glenn was phenomenal. Um, the hitting coach, Tim Doherty was great. Cause he just kind of let me do my thing and nobody was, you know, barking at me to do this that the other thing you're in triple a just go be a man do what you need to do and figure it out and then i felt like incredibly comfortable the city of rochester was unbelievable like i i mean to this day i near and dear to my heart and i have relationships with people the, the silvers who own the team and, um you know it was again a perfect blend perfect storm and i think yeah it, it, you know it it, when I when I started getting the validation from the guys next to me and I would see guys come down from the big leagues and not necessarily like supersede them, but like I could, I knew I could hang and certainly I was outperforming or outshining on any given day. So it was, I mean, it, it became pretty obvious when I was AAA that I was going to get called up at some point. And it became pretty obvious that my story was going to resonate with people too. And, um, the thing that I just try to let everybody know is like, it's just my story, right? Everybody has one. It like, and it, it never became more clear than when I was in Toronto because everybody had a story there, like Donaldson, Encarnacion, Batista, R.A. Dickey. Like just look around the room. We all had weird stories. Well, walk me through that first call. Well, uh, we're in Lehigh Valley and ironically enough, I started the series. I was hitting about 376 with 12 homers on May 22nd. So everybody's like, dude, you're going to go soon. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like I was enjoying AAA. I was really embracing, like it was AAA was, I mean, it might as well have been the big leagues compared to any ball, like great clubhouses, great travel, like, you know, all that stuff. And uh, the things that most guys don't appreciate about the minors, I'm like, wow, this is incredible. You know? Um, and what, so what, I, what were those things actually before, before we get into the call, I'm curious the the things about the minors that, you know, felt like the big leagues. This is my favorite one of all. We had a fountain soda machine in the clubhouse in Rochester. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Like I was a diet Coke aficionado before I've gone on this like health kick in my life where I, I don't drink soda, but man, I, the nice fountain diet Coke. Oof. Like getting that in the clubhouse, getting to sit in a recliner, 
you know, bigger clubhouses, training rooms that had stuff in them, uh, two buses, uh, better spreads, you know, cleats cleaned, like name on the back of your jersey, like all like it's just a bunch of little things that really nobody pays attention to. But I'm like, man, these are a huge deal for me um, having a, you know, a clubby who's really like a full time job and just like little stuff and it, it was to me it was all awesome and the stadiums were great too for the most part um you know that stuff was pretty incredible and i i really just embraced it i was enjoying triple a to the point where we went down to lehigh i was like i was having so much fun that i was like nobody's gonna stop me so i it's the first game in lehigh valley and we're down there and i go oh for four in the first game right and i go from 376 to 369 or whatever it is and i get a text message from my dad after the game and he's asleep after the game but he sent it you know before the game ended you know where were you tonight you were non-existent those at bats were blah. and i i called my mom and i remember saying mom do me a favor tell dad he's on a three-day suspension right he's like he can't talk to me like that i said you know whatever the next day we had a morning game and I got four hits in the morning game. And he goes, he apologized to me. I said, the suspension lasts as long as he doesn't apologize. And my dad was always my biggest fan and also my number one critic. And so, you know, that series was like, you know, that come to reality moment where it's like that, I, I got it. Don't worry. And uh, the next day they, they said to me, they're like, Hey, uh, we're gonna put you in right. Can you play the outfield? And when they do that in the middle of the year, you kind of like, okay, like you're thinking about, how to get me in the lineup because we got Justin Morneau at first bear, you know, Justin Morneau is playing first and Joe's catching. We got a DH. So like, let's figure out the outfield. So I go out and play right and Kyle Gibson's pitching and not one ball gets hit to right field. And I'm like, man, this is easy. This is great. We're on the first base side, short run to the dugout. Perfect. Uh, and then the next night they ran me out there again. Um, and I had a pretty good series. I think I homered the series again. So uh, we get on the bus to go home and, you know, Bobby texts me at like 1130 and I guess Plouffe had, had gotten hit in the head uh, on a slide. And I think everybody kind of assumed that the first shot that it would probably be me if there was 40 man space and, you know, playing a card game with Liam Hendricks, Andrew Albers, Kyle Gibson. It's like the most intense hand ever. And Gene Glenn starts walking to the back of the bus and he like kind of stops and we're like, all right, Gene, we'll move the table. And he's like, no, no I'll just watch for a while. And I'm like trying to think about what I'm going to bid in the hand. And he, I was like, what's up? And he's like, you. And I was like, what? And he goes, you're going to the big leagues. And everybody just kind of roared. And um, it was pretty, pretty cool. Like everybody on the bus, I think, appreciated the moment for me because they understood what I went to to get there. And in obvious Chris Colabella weird fashion, we get hit by a car on the way home that night. So we got pulled over on the side of the road at four in the morning and trying to make it back to Rochester to, get to the plane in time to get to Atlanta but we got through that too what was the the call like to your parents mm, trying to wake them up at one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning or whatever it was it was pretty uh pretty challenging but I immediately you know I called mom and dad first I kept kept ringing until somebody answered and um I cried a little bit with my dad like you know we did it and thinking about it right now is yeah well up a little bit because I, I don't think I've ever really stopped and thought about that moment because I, I felt like there was so much more I wanted to do but you know getting to share that stuff with my pops was everything because he you know he had his opportunity kind of derailed from him due to injuries and things like that and um 
that was pretty cool. And and obviously calling my wife and girlfriend at the time and, and, and Tukes. Um, and they were able to get on a plane the next morning and fly to Atlanta. So that was, uh, it's pretty neat. Like you don't, it's really, this is honestly the first time I've ever really looked back on that moment and, and like a little bit emotional. So, um, it was cool, man. It was, it was cool. So even at the time, like you're on, you're on the plane or anything, was there, was there any sort of pinch me moment? Was there any chance to kind of savor this? Uh, none whatsoever. Um, I literally, I mean, it was such a scramble to get back to Rochester and get on the flight and, uh, make it to the airport in time, make sure I had clothes that I could wear to the big leagues. And I just, I didn't sleep because who sleeps in that? I, as soon as I tried to sleep, we got hit by a car. So uh, like, you know, it's a six thirty flight, six forty five flight. And I got to be in Atlanta for a 1230 game. And thinking to myself, like, well, maybe, you know, I don't, if, if there's ever a day, a day to have off and just kind of like get your bearings, that's probably it. But instead, you know, I, I pull up to the stadium and I'm like, they're not going to, I don't even have a twins bag. Like how are they going to believe me? And I just happened to be pulling in as the second bus was pulling in and um, everybody was like banging on the windows and stuff. And um, I walked in and Scotty Elger, the, the first base coach, as I'm getting my uniform and stuff comes over, he's like, Hey, congrats. He's like, uh, you're hitting six. You're playing right field. And I'm like, no, oh. Uh, all right, cool. Like I walked to the cage and I threw up in my mouth. I was like, I just had a nightmare in right field last night. Um, and I haven't slept. So like better hope Hicks runs over and catches the thing today. And I had some weird moments in the outfield, but like, it was, it was almost too quick to like even rationalize it. And, you know, I thought I hit a bullet up the gap for my first hit and my first at bat, but Jason Hayward can play right field pretty good. So he caught it. Uh, that he can. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the day I was delirious. Um, I think we gave up like eight in the, in the second or third inning and we we're just out there forever. And like, I, 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 if I ever gave away at bats, that's probably the day. Cause I'm, you know, trying to force myself to get a hit in my debut. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, things went a little fast on me. Let's put it that way. And then I passed out on the bus on the way to the airport and drooled all over myself. And like, guys are looking at me funny. I'm like, yeah, I haven't slept in, you know, 36 hours. So sorry. Well, you mentioned, you know, on the way to the airport and you talk about the, the luxuries of the minor leagues that you're enjoying, the fountain machines and things like that. What's, after all that time in any ball, what's the most outrageous luxury afforded to big leaguers? Oh, man. Uh, well, when I first got there, like in Minnesota, I'd never been to Target Field and we had like this wall of candy bars, like literally every candy bar known to man was on our, our wall in the kitchen. And I was like, man, it's pretty cool. And then, you know, the snacks on the plane. Um, I, I think, you know, traveling private the charters like they, once you do that like you're like really i have to take a a, a, a commercial flight you know at 6 a.m or whatever and play a game that night that seems ridiculous when you could just fly after the game and get there at one o'clock and you know go to bed at two or three um having your own room and these like nice hotels they they all kind of like wear off they're all just like novelty items after a while um because at the end of the day like you know, you're there to play baseball, but certainly like he's, it's as good a treatment as I could ever expect. Like I, I, the way I describe it to people and this might sound weird, but you know, you can get pretty much everything done for you in the big leagues, except for, you know, maybe, you know, when you get done in the bathroom and you gotta, you gotta clean yourself off, stuff like that. But, um, yeah, 
you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's great. It's, it's, it's a big league. It's uh, probably how it should be. And players before us fought long and hard to get those amenities. And um, certainly I think they're deserved for players, but uh, sometimes maybe underappreciated. What about what big leaguers are afforded in terms of, of scouting and especially at that time, like scouting data, um, any sort of instruction, really any, anything like that to stay at the top of your game. Is there a, is at that time, I guess in 2013, when you get called up, was there a clear difference in the, the jump from AAA to the big leagues in terms of the, I guess, preparedness or the, the availability of things to help you be prepared? Yeah. I mean, I think that the way the information is presented to you is certainly like you have an opportunity to see anything you could ever want to see, right? Like whatever you want, whether it's on video or data or scouting or whatever, you can get it. Um, I learned pretty quickly that I had to like shy away from that stuff because I always, you know, my best tool is my brain. Uh, my best scouting report is my eyes. Um, if you pay attention in baseball, the game tells you what's going on all the time. Like just, just all the time. So, you know, when people talk about the sign stealing stuff, I'm like, guys, I knew what was coming 75% of the time, whether I had the signs or not, like it doesn't make it that much easier to hit. Um, you know, you get fooled sometimes and, you know, other times they make a great pitch or whatever, but, um, you know, I, I always, I, I err on the side of recency bias, meaning like if I see a starter who's really commanding a certain pitch on any given day, like I know it's a go-to pitch, you know, more than anything, I, I really always just want to know what, what they like to do with two strikes to kind of put guys away, especially the guys that profile kind of similar to yourself. But, um, you know, my approach was pretty simple when I say, and I say simple because I was looking for fastballs out over the plate and the, the, the further along I got, the more I, I refined that to, Hey, I'm looking down the middle, middle away, getting a heater. And then, you know, the way I'd built my swing was to be adjustable, right? Like the way I built success was by being adjustable within the swing. And, you know, you just hope that guys secondary stuff doesn't play like, you know, up, up, up that day. And there certainly are some guys that, that have really plus plus secondary pitches that, you know, it doesn't matter if you have binoculars and, uh, you know, an hourglass to, to, to wait for the pitch to come to home plate. Like it can be tough to hit it. Um, and, and I think my game kind of reshaped itself as I went on, I gained more confidence in myself because when you first get there, they don't care who you are, or what you did in AAA. They they really attack with the fastball and try to say, "Here, hit me." And uh, you know, especially based on the circumstances. But my strikeout numbers went up a little bit. But I think it was a lot of it was like that learning curve of, again, learning how to relax and being in a new environment. So I think after you know, once 2013 was over, I was acutely aware that I could play in the big leagues and, and be successful. And I think I started to prove that early in 2014 before I hurt my thumb. And if if I have uh, the the all knowing Wikipedia, if, if Wikipedia is right, you turned down a, a reportedly one million dollar contract offer to go to Korea. So it's funny. Uh, <laughs> they had offered my first. The first offer was four hundred with a two hundred in incentives, and uh, you know I was trying to be obnoxious because I, I knew I didn't want to go. Um, so I kept telling my agent a million, like a million, and then we'll talk. And so the next offer came in, it was 500 with 200 incentives. And I was like, I told you what the number is. And then like teams just kept calling. And even to the point where they were calling Terry Ryan directly to try to, you know, buy my rights from the twins. And at one point Terry was like, 
hey, uh, I'd probably think about taking this if I were you. And, like, he's like, I don't think you're going to make the team out of camp. And I, I said, TR, I said, no offense. I, I said, I, I don't care if I make the team or not. I got to the big leagues just fine last year. And I know I'm going to go to AAA and enjoy myself and do it again. So it doesn't really matter to me. And he, I think he appreciated and respected it. But the final offer that came in was 900 with no incentives because it, it got to seven with two in incentives. And I said, I don't need incentives. And my agent kind of finagled it to that. So I don't, I don't think they ever offered the sixth, the, the seventh figure, but, um, you round out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, pro I probably could have weaseled my way into it if I wanted to, but, um, and it certainly, it sounded like a good number and I don't know if I was, I kicked myself to this day or whatever, but I certainly wouldn't have had the opportunities to do what I did. And, you know, I, I knew I was going to make pretty good money in triple a, even if I started the year there that year, cause I'd had, ample time in the big league so i was like i i never played baseball for money i played baseball because i want to play against the best players in the world and and be one of the best players in the world so um it was really i mean if they had said three million or five million probably like start to you know rethink it a little bit how does making decent money change your life though now i'm not talking like a million dollars in korea yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> once you get your service time and like you're not having to do lessons in the off season yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a game changer, right? Like, you get to actually just focus on the things you need to focus on to prepare and, and be better. And, and really, more than anything, it becomes, like, just a thing you don't have to worry about. You know, it's – I never needed much. Like, I, I've I've never really lived beyond my means. I, I, you know, the nicest car I've ever had is, like, a, I, like a, a Tahoe. I bought it in 2013 after my first year in the big leagues. And even that I bought with, like, 15,000 miles on it. I was never going to go gallivant and spending money and certainly understood what it, the importance of a dollar and, and how much I enjoyed not having to worry about money. Uh, so I've always been pretty uh, frugal, I guess, in the way I lived. Um, you know, bought our house a couple years ago, two, uh, five years ago now, 2017, and certainly didn't, wasn't an extravagant purchase. Uh, it's a nice house. I like it a lot. Uh, but you know, it wasn't a $2 million mansion in Boca Raton. That's for sure. Um, it, it just, it makes life, it takes one of the stresses of life away. Right. Like, and I certainly appreciate how much I didn't have to stress and still like, because I've been relatively intelligent, um, don't have to stress. I, I think I panic about like numbers that are probably like really unrational, irrational to most people. Like, like, well, if I, you know, I get, and then I have to sit back and be like, yeah, I can spend this 500 bucks and it's not going to affect my life one way or the other. And it was funny, you know, too low. We're, me and Darwin Barney were in the dugout in Toronto one day and we were talking about, like, I was like, what do you, like, what do you think? It's like, when, you, when are you like rich? Like I asked and Darwin was like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. And Tulo turns to us. He goes, when you can take $500 out of the ATM and not think twice about it. And I was like, man, Barney, I guess we're rich, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, th I think Tulo hit that point like the day he left Long Beach State. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think there was like just perspectives, like a different thing. And, you know, he went and took the volunteer job at Texas and he called me. He's like, man, like just follow your passion and just do what you're doing. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start a software company with my friend and we're going to raise money and try to do it. Like, Why don't you just go coach? And look at me. I took a volunteer job. And no offense to Tulo. I, I think he did a great job at Texas. I respect the heck out of him. But I was like, Tulo, you made like $180 million, dude. I'm like, I think I've just barely cracked a million or something like that. So 
Um, it's a little different paradigm, but um, I get it. I, I, I certainly agree with them where it's follow your dreams. And I think this is just my new dream. I want to, I want to win at business the same way I wanted to win at baseball. So. Well, with, with baseball, you get, you get DFA'd by the twins, claimed by the blue Jays by May you're in Toronto. What about your time there made the difference? Because they, there's, there's clear, there's clear things that click. Yeah. It's funny that you, uh, you know, you, you're being a twins fan and, and mentioning, you know, how, how much you'd follow me in, in Minnesota. It, it's, it's weird to say this out loud. And I, I am, truly grateful to Minnesota for the opportunity and what they gave me and the chance that they gave me an affiliated baseball. But this is going to sound probably mean and you might cut me off, but I will always consider myself a Toronto Blue Jay. Um, it, because I mean, fair, fair. Because, well, I, it was my, it came into my own, right? Like, and I got to be part of that team that was magical, like literally magical. Um, Obviously, 2014, I proved to myself that I belonged in the big leagues, right? I, I did it for an extended period of time, which was, you know, the better part of a month. Um, and I knew that I could sustain that had I not been an idiot and tried to play with one hand, basically. Um, and it was, again, like you talk about this, like, perfect storm of things. Like, you know, the Twins sent me down and I was leading the team in RBIs by 10. Um, I had 30 RBIs on May, whatever, 5th you know, past Kirby Puckett for the, the twins all time record in April, um, was like tied for the team leading doubles. And it clearly I was I was not myself, but it was because I was injured. And I was I was trying to make it clear to the trainers that there was a problem with my thumb and it just like I don't know if I wasn't being as clear as I could have been, but like it wasn't your standard bone bruise, you know, you're gonna get past this and it's gonna get better. Like every time I didn't hit a ball on the screws, my hand vibrated for what felt like, you know, a week. Like literally, I'm just still, I to this day, I don't have a feeling in the tip of my thumb. And I was angry. Like I was more angry that they didn't, they didn't ask what's going on. Instead, they just, they sent me down, didn't even ask me if I, they thought I needed to go on a DL or anything like that. And I, in Minnesota, like this is going to sound stupid, but I was always the independent guy, right? Like I was just going to be the independent guy and, you know, right, wrong or indifferent. That's the way I felt. Um, and again, incredibly thankful for the opportunity. I certainly had to knock down a door to get to the big leagues. Cause if, if that year in AAA in 2013, I'm hitting, you know, and when the year ends, I'm hitting 316 with 14 homers. Like maybe I get a September call up, but you know, I had to go out and, I had to go out and take the triple A MVP to get an opportunity. And I, and I won the triple A MVP that year. And I think it was 89 games to get the opportunities that I did that year. Um, certainly I could have performed better, but I also did some things. Okay. I had seven homers and 150 some odd at bats. And um, my batting average was abysmal because the first, you know, 40 at bats I had in the big leagues were like, scattered in and out of lineup stuff that I just didn't know how to do. I didn't, I didn't know how to come off the bench and then it was going to take some time for me to learn. And then going into 14, I proved that I could do all of it. And I was angry that I like people just thought I couldn't hit. And that was abundantly clear that I could, in my opinion, over the course of my track record. But again, for all the right reasons, I end up in Toronto and it was like refreshing, right? Like it's a new shot with a new team where now I'm a major league player. I'm not, 
you know, they claim me as a major league player, not as a, as the independent ball guy who they took off the scrap heap. Right. And um, the difference I'll say in Toronto, and obviously we had some grim years there in Minnesota going 16, hundred is not easy for anyone. Um, trying to figure out how to press the right buttons, do the right things, this and that. But I needed to be playing for a contender, like, because for a 31 year old to be in a lineup and, and, be part of an organization and be part of a, a big league roster, we had to be in contention because if not, you're just going to go with the 25 year old. Um, and, you know, I felt it right away in Toronto. Um, Alex Antopoulos had discussed it on TV and the media. John Gibbons had said it like we were trying to create a culture, right? We were trying to get character guys. And I remember the day I got sent down, I went in and I, you could feel it in the clubhouse, guys like Josh Tolley, Kawasaki, Burley, um, you know, the list goes on. Um, like we were all just allowed to be ourselves and we didn't have to pretend. And cause all that mattered was showing up at seven Oh five and beating the brakes off somebody. And I went in when I, the day I got sent down, I said, you know, Alex, give me kudos to you guys for what you've done. Um, you've accomplished every goal you set out to accomplish. And I said, I don't know how many, how many games this team's going to win, but it's going to be a lot of fun doing it. And you know, they said, oh, we're really glad you feel that way. We see you being a part of this at some point. I said, good, because when I get there, I'm not leaving. And I said it verbatim. And I would have never said that if I didn't believe it to my core. And, you know, again, getting to go to AAA with a healthy thumb, like, which was what a what a breath of fresh air. Like, I always had these moments that allowed me to remember why I loved the game, whether it was the spleen when I was in college or, you know, the, you know, the, 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 rally pig or you know the whatever it this moment was like oh my god my thumb doesn't hurt thank god i get to play and enjoy it again and so i went to triple a with like clear mind it was a clear mind full heart can't lose that was uh yeah that was kind of how I, I i was just i was again i was a, a little kid and you know led to internationally player of the month and before you knew it i was in toronto and i this time with full conviction awareness of my body like you know i'm gonna go contribute and i don't care how long you need me here i don't care if you need me to pinch hit like i'm gonna figure out how to contribute and then little did i know i was gonna run off 41 straight starts and you know be our left fielder slash right fielder i wish every year they'd maybe given me some reps in the outfield during spring training so that i could have figured out how to do it and not look like an idiot but you know other than that it was uh it was pretty awesome and that was Again, it was a coming of it was a uh, it was the right time. Right? It was the right time in the right place. Yeah, whatever works with that outfield stuff. I mean, you you know, you hit three twenty one that year. You guys go to the playoffs. I just I need you to describe for me what it was like w- when Bautista hit that home run. The oh home. my goodness! I'm I to, every time I talk about it, I get chills. I probably talk about it five times a week. Um, it, I mean, man, oh man, it was. It was it was this moment that got built and built and built in totality, right? Down two to nothing, uh, losing the second game at home, uh, going down two nothing, having to go on the road. Uh, the way we won game three, big homer from Tulo, and like what felt like a game that wasn't close, that really was two nothing in like the sixth, and we just kept hitting into double plays and we couldn't score runs, and and then you know game four, uh, day game in Texas, and you know Donaldson, you know running his mouth during BP. Nobody goes up all like me. And I was like, <clears throat> I'm sending right here, dude. And like, then sure enough, he, you know, hits an opposite field homer and he comes in. Nobody goes up all like me. And I'm like, and then Gibby turns to Russell Martin. He's like, Russ, tell him you go up. And I'm like, Gibby, I'm standing right here. 
And uh, and then I went up and hit. Josh Donaldson running his mouth. Who'd have thought? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> and, and like you know what, he was the he was the right guy for that team in the right moment at the time. Um, we needed a guy who was. You know, at 7.05, 7.07, whatever time we played, I respect the heck out of the way he plays the game. And he has his moments where, you know, he's just, you know, misinterpreted, whatever you want to call it. But, like, you know, you respect the way he plays the game. And, um, you know, and then I end up hitting the homer there in the first. And, like, we we, we ran away with game four to get it to 2-2. Two, two. And, and there was this moment that nobody really saw. Like, we went to do our first workout day in Texas, and they didn't rake the field for us before we had our workout. So, like, the Toronto Blue Jays were like grabbing rakes out of the, 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 the shed. And we were like raking our own infield and we we're like, <laughs> shouldn't have woken up a sleeping giant, you know, Munenori Kawasaki having a, a full meeting in Japanese before game three, when we're down two to nothing. And like, everybody's just dying laughing. And we're like, we're going to win the series. Like we're going to win the series and get it to two, two. And now you understand the magnitude of the moment. Like, you know, you, you, you have to play perfect. You can't, you have no, you know, no, my bads anymore. Right. Like, and then all of a sudden, you know, the ball goes off, choose bat and this weird, like cosmic moment that like, it's felt like three hours, like, right. We're out on the field, stuff's getting thrown, reviewing the play, reviewing this, and, you know, the three errors, the next inning, I think we're just the baseball God saying, uh-uh, we're not going to let it end like that. And, you know, it, Jose being the guy that comes up in that moment is like it, it. He is Toronto in that moment, right? He's like he's the guy. Like I, I, I'm literally happier that he hit it than if I had hit it because like he embodied the struggle and everything that 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 city was standing for at the time and how good we were playing and how we deserved to be in the ALCS. And you know, the only thing that's disappointing about the whole thing, and honestly, the moment itself, like it felt like we won the World Series when we won. And we just kind of took a deep breath, right? Like we, we took a deep breath and we went and played a Royals team who, you know, had been there and done it and knew to not come off the gas. And and because of that, we got down to nothing again. And, and now like they were, they understood how to, how to win a series. And, you know, I hate to sit here and say like we were a better team because they won and they deserved it because they won four games quickest. And, but man, oh man, if like, if we just go into that, that ALCS with a little bit more, I don't know, urgency, pizzazz, whatever you want to call it. Like, I think that the outcome's different and we hoist the trophy at the end. But um, that moment in time might as well have been a World Series championship because that's how epic it was and how great of a baseball game it turned out to be and stood the test of time, obviously, and will continue to. Yeah, it still gets – still like, clips still come up on Twitter all the time and um, just especially, like, that 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 beginning, essentially. Um so now I guess we get to the point in, in your career and your story where I obviously I don't want to say happy ending, but some validation, yeah. I would say after the, the, re, the recent CBA, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, guys like you and, and Ken Emanuel have spent the past six years in, in the fight against suspending players for, and you're going to have to explain all this to me because, sure. you know, from DHCMT, if I have that sure. correctly. Yeah. I, it took me, it took me six years to figure that out. Yeah. I still don't know the whole word. So yeah, you fun. have a suspension come down in early 2016. How long was the process of learning? This wasn't something you actually ingested or at least in like a traditional way 
to an actual wronging by this testing process? Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, you go from the highest of highs the year before I've established that I'm a major league player. I'm going to make the team out of camp. I know it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I'm, I'm talking to the team about signing an extension. Like my life is like, you know, lining up the way I saw it just 10 years later. Right. And, uh, you're going to be a multimillionaire. Yeah. It's, uh, it's going to happen. Right. Like it's the, the culmination. And now I get to go, I get to go continue to reestablish the thing that I always want to establish that I was the best hitter on the planet. I told people that all the time. I said, just, I, I, I like, that was my, that was my bar, right. All the time. And Mike Trout's pretty good. And I know that. And like, you know, I would have liked to have seen what 500 or 600 at bat Chris Colabello could have done with the mindset and attitude. And I had built all this armor. I built all this equity over the years that like knowing, you know, people want to call 27, 28, 29, 30, your prime. My prime is probably now, to be honest with you, because my greatest tool is sharpened. Like my greatest tool is sharpened. My greatest tool is my mind. And I think that's why the best hitters of all time can hit into their late thirties and forties, especially ones that don't have to do it with their legs, right. Or play at premium positions. So I'm thinking to myself, like I got, there's, you know, there's seven, eight years left in front of me that are going to be really productive. Um, still wanted to win a world series, wanted to be an all-star, like all those things. And I, I was probably borderline in the conversation to be an all-star at 15. And, um, you know, and like this, this bomb drops, like, and it's, I tell people all the time, it's like literally the only thing I couldn't have predicted. Right. Like it's see, like I had prepared myself for every other possible situation, injury, DFA, failure, whatever. Like I knew how to handle every single one of those things at that point. And I'm sure like I would have found a new one, but this one, uh, this one just was, was never even a consideration. Right. Because I genuinely like, and, and generally people hear me talk about the game and I am a true romantic of baseball. I love it for everything it stands for and every moment and every nuance and little thing. And I would never, not my wildest dreams compromise that for anything. Right. And here I am with this phone call from the major league baseball players association. And after having been to the, to the executive meetings that winter, like, I know I can't win. I literally know I have no shot of winning my arbitration. I have, I can't win the hearing. So all of a sudden, all that's flashing in my, in my mind is this headline that's going to say Chris Carlebell is a cheater, nothing else. And like, you're now calling into question my character, my integrity, my reputation, everything that I built, like regardless of stats or what I accomplished in the game. And not to mention, now it's going to be really easy for people to point the finger and say, oh, well, of course he did what he did last year, which is a crock of shit, pardon my language, because I don't care what anybody takes or doesn't take. Like, it don't make you hit 321, I'll tell you that much. Like, whatever. That's not neither here nor there. But it was, like, paralyzing. Like, paralyzing, uh, like, immediate, like, just a fog. Like, it's, it's, it was depression at its finest, and combined with anxiety that I probably masked pretty well to the general public. But when I tried to play baseball, it was, there was no chance that year. I had no shot. Like I literally went from, I was hitting like 380 at camp to 
I think I finished spring training at two. So it was my first minor. It was my first major league spring training under 300, which is annoying that I even know that. Um, because at that point, you know, you're going to be suspended at some point. Yeah. There's basically right. like, I, I'm short of a miracle, like nothing, there's nothing I can do because I, you can't prove a negative in life, right? Like you can't, how do you prove that you didn't do something like, and I'm literally opening day in Tampa Bay. I'm sitting on the phone with my agent for six hours after the game like going through where I ate, what I had for breakfast, what I had for lunch, credit card records, social media posts, like everything, trying to figure out where I was on any given day. I'm sending my dog's blood and urine samples to get tested. I'm literally trying to turn over every stone and you know you have this finite amount of time to do it, right? And nobody wants to listen. Like the only people that heard me and could see the honesty and truth in my face were the ones that were dealing with me every day but they're lawyers working for players association and they know that the letter of the law says there's just, just isn't going to work. And I think the only thing I had going for me was I wear my heart on my sleeve. Like anybody that's listening to this knows like I'm as candid and truthful and open a book as there is. Like you can ask me anything. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I had done that. I just chose to live a life of truth because it was much less stressful than lying. Um, because when you lie, you have to figure out a way to cover things up. And it's been seven freaking years, six years, and my story hasn't batted an eyelash. Um, and can you can you explain for the listeners what it is you tested positive? Because we grew up in the era of Balco and Biogenesis and these new kind of cutting edge steroid factories that the yeah. guy you know guy hgh becoming a thing guys get you know testing positive for stuff that's connected to these laboratories producing can you explain what it is that you tested positive for and when it was first developed so i tested positive for a drug called dehydrochloromethyl testosterone as is called dhcmt um the acronym uh but i didn't test positive for the drug i tested positive for a single trace metabolite of dhcmt your body breaks things down. It's called metabolizing things and it turns food, anything you eat, consume into a, a metabolite in your urine stream. Um, there are all foods, sources of things that you put in your body have multiple metabolites, right? It's what chemical process of breaking down whatever you consume into. And they, they turn into these different chemicals when they, when they get broken down. Uh, the, the metabolite in question was called the M3 metabolite, just a given name. It's a longer name. Some publications call it the M4, others call it the M3. Um, regardless, it was, it was thought to be the long-term metabolite of DHMT. Now, the test in question was, was created, I think it was 2012. There was a paper published by uh, a guy named Tim Soboleski. He works in a lab somewhere, but the, the study was basically done off of a... <laughs> a single administration study by the guy named Gregory Rudchenkov, who is, if anybody's ever watched Icarus, the scientist who is now in uh, witness protection here in the United States because he was part of the Russian doping scandal. So already the guy that generated the test is like, you know, a dude who like has a, a, a checkered past, right? And for the life of me, I'm like looking through these materials and, and it's telling me, that this metabolite, according to their studies, should last 30 to 40 days in your system or 40 to 50 days or whatever it is. And so I'm like scouring the last 80 days of my life to try to figure out how it got in my body. And I'm literally, there's no answer other than the things that were new in my life, bath salts, my dog, like 
all the supplements I took were from the team, had every one of them tested, all NSF certified, exactly what I was told to do, because not my wildest dreams would I dare take anything that wasn't. I'm too smart for that, right? So now all of a sudden, I have no answer. I don't even know where it came from. So these other two guys, Daniel Stumpf and, and Cody Stanley were the only, Daniel tested positive around the same time I did. Cody Stanley had tested positive the year before. And I'm trying to get a hold of Cody and Daniel's story is exactly the same as mine. He had just gotten put on the 40 man and he tested for the first time. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, Alec Asher and Boog Powell test positive for the same thing. And everybody's calling me and everybody's throwing their hands up there going, what the heck? Cody was the only guy we couldn't get in touch with because he was fighting something. We didn't know. Finally, Cody calls me and he's like, Hey, guess what? I tested positive again. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I tested positive originally in July and then again in December. So now literally he was being accused of having taken the drug and being caught at the end of the excretion phase. And then having taken the same drug again, six months later or five months later and being caught again at the end of excretion. Now, I can get into the nitty gritty of this, but now you've already, you've already like said the paper's wrong because that 40 to 50 day window is now wrong. Nobody's testing positive for other metabolites. Nobody's testing positive for parent compound and then keep going and guys keep testing positive. Daniel tested positive. I don't know how many times that summer, like five Cody ended up testing positive, like another seven uh, other players, you know, Michael Chavis who got suspended Logan Webb, all these guys, like for the most part, have continued to test positive over and over and over again with like these gaps in between, including John Jones, the UFC fighter, who I literally have seen his test papers. Like he'll test positive in the morning and negative at night or negative in the morning and positive at night because he was being tested so often. So the UFC realized pretty quickly that there was a problem, right? And we still don't really know what the problem is because nobody wants to say, hey, the test is messed up, which I understand. Like it, it is what it is. Like they've, proven that something that looks like this comes from this drug but we haven't proven that it doesn't come from somewhere else either and that's like the biggest thing that i i continue to fight and i'm like you can't suspend people if you don't know how or why it's happening and obviously there's enough data points to prove that so i you know i've been on the forefront of this every time it's happened to somebody i've been on the phone with logan webb when he was crying and telling me he couldn't eat and worried about everything that went into his body i've been on the phone with michael chavis when he was going through it colton welker justin lawrence paul campbell like all these guys that you know they were for, they were really just getting onto the 40 man and testing positive because i guess the testing is a little different between minor and, and major leagues but there's still no real clear answer as to how it's getting into people's systems but uh, uh there's a, a, a paralympic athlete who literally just got suspended missed the the olympics last year and just won his arbitration um and his suspension has been null and voided because um there's not enough evidence to prove that he took anything now he he found a receipt from a thing that he took 10 years ago that was like an over-the-counter well before he was exposed to the drug testing anybody in their right mind can't assume that they were going to take a thing 10 years ago and that they would test positive for it 10 years later. Um, in my case, I, you know, I went into that spring training with one goal in mind to lose 10 pounds and be more mobile. Cause the big knock on me was that I couldn't play defense. So you're going to tell me I took the harshest Eastern European drug in the history of the world that has like testosterone in it and that I was going to lose weight. Um, and you know, one of the things that the UFC has been finding too, as, as guys continue to test positive for these low 
trace picogram amounts of this metabolite is that they're, they're happening at weight cuts. So, um, you know, it, it's ironic because guys will go like stay the same weight they normally are. And then they'll do a weight cut and they'll test positive for the drug, which is, uh, you know, pretty interesting or for the metabolite, I should say. So like, you know, now, uh, according to the new CBA, we we've been assured that, you know, this wouldn't happen again. I, I don't know the details to the, you know, the threshold things and things that like the UFC has put in a threshold. Um, you know, MLB won't speak openly about it. So um, they, they did it all under confidentiality. So there's no actual threshold because they say that they're worried about, you know, guys abusing the system, which whatever. I mean, it is like, it's just, it's a, it's a way to, to not have to say, you know, we're sorry, which, you know, at this point it is what it is for me. Like I, 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 I deserve to be repaid. I deserve compensation. I deserve a lot of different things, but more importantly than anything else, I'm happy that nobody will ever have to go through this again. Um, but the fight's not over. Like I'm out. I think it was Babe Ruth that said, it's tough to beat the guy that never quits. I did it in my baseball career. I might as well do it in this too. How much did the misery loves company aspect of this help you, you mentally get through it? Like having, um, you know, Kent and Logan Webb and, and guys like that and not being the only person who, you know, was, was branded a cheater. And like, you know, as a fan in baseball in 2016, like it broke my heart when that test came through or when yeah. the, the, the suspension came through, like how the, the, I guess like the bond that, that you and these guys, cause like, it seems like a big time group effort that it seems like you were one of these guys spearheading to, to make this happen. Like, and how, you know, has it been validating in the sense of all this report? I think it was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was Ken Rosenthal who wrote a long piece. Um, has it, have you been able to get some, I told you so's in at all? Uh, I mean, it, like, I, I, you know, it's funny. People always talk about like vengeance and, and, and getting your, you know, what's, what's, what's coming and things like that. And like, at the end of the day, like it doesn't change anything, right? Like it doesn't change the fact that I got my career taken away from me. It doesn't change the fact that I never got to play again, which is the only thing I wanted to do. Like they could have kept all the money. I literally told them, I was like, look, you guys can take every dollar that I earn, like for the foreseeable future. Just let me play. Like all I want to do is play. And I, I tried to make these like ludicrous statements, which I was truthful about. Like they could have taken every dime that I made and I would have been completely fine. Like, I didn't care. I just want to play the game. It's all I've ever wanted to do. And now I climb the mountain. I do this. And I, I, I and now you're taking it away from me. So, like, that, I don't get that back. Like, and I knew I wasn't going to get it back, which is probably what caused the depression, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, I felt purpose to be able to help these guys. Um, I knew I could be a voice for them because as soon as, like, they didn't let me play anymore, um, what like what else was I going to do? Just sit around and wait. Um, every day that goes by, more and more people become aware of the story, right? And and to hear the Michael Chavises of the world, his his fiance came up to me in Worcester last year when he was still in Boston, and uh, you know gave me the biggest hug and like stuff like that matters, you know, like getting to watch Logan go out and deal. Um, Kent to me has been, and no offense to these other guys, but Kent has taken like, taken the reins with me, which has been uh, completely invaluable because 
at some point it's just exhausting. It's exhausting to tell a story again. It's, it's exhausting to have to continue to reassure people. And, and cause every person you talk to is a new person. You don't know what they, they know about the story. And I know if I don't talk about it, nobody's going to talk about it. So to have Kent along for the journey with me and then to watch him do what he did with the number zero on his back, like he came in and in his debut and, you know, pitch eight and a third. And I'm like sitting there crying and I like, Kent and I have done a couple of podcasts together interviews. And I'm like, I'm like the emotional one. He's like the, yeah, whatever. Like I want to go stick it up everybody's butt. And like, I, I'm like, yeah, like I, I wish I'm, I'm envious of his ability to do that. Right. Because coming back from that, he, you know, it's like, it never happened. It's, it's built thicker skin for him. And for me, it was so devastating because, you know, the circumstances were what they were. And, you know, I was one of the first guys and I think now people are much more aware, not everybody, certainly, which is the only thing that would be right. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess like, you know, the best way to describe it is I watched the the Duke lacrosse kids, um, the 30 for 30 a few years back. And those was uh, fantastic lies. Yeah. And, and one of the parents at the end of it, um, they asked him, they said, is the wound healed yet? And, uh, and they said, yeah, the wound's healed the scar still there. And I thought it was like such a accurate representation of like everything that I feel and see right now, because, you know, it's the scar still there. It's never going to go away. Like, you know, can never take the scar away. Like that's the part that sucks, you know, cause I, and I didn't get to play. I didn't get to finish my career the way I wanted to. I, I didn't get to, to, I think I'd still be playing right now. I'm, I think I'm better now than I was before. I'm, it's it's hard. It's hard. I, I just, you know, it is what it is. But maybe it happened to me because I was the one that could handle it. Were you ever able to have have fun playing baseball again? Because it, it was you never got back to the big leagues. You did you did kick around for a couple more years. Were you you know were like you hit three hundred one in Colorado Springs? Were you you know, was there was there flashes of fun or were you going through it anytime you were on a baseball field? It was a different fun. It didn't happen until I got to Springs. Um, and probably like a month into being in Springs, to be honest with you. Like I went to, when I tried to come back in 16, I, I literally had no chance. I had zero fun. Every bad thing that happened to me on a baseball field, I assumed was like the end of the world uh, for the first time in my life. I could, there was no way I could overcome any of it at the time. And I'm the kind of person that wants to take on every challenge. So I was like, well, I'm just going to grind my way through it. And then like, literally I, I <laughs> didn't matter what I did. I couldn't. And when I learned about what depression does to people like physically, I couldn't, I couldn't actually perform like, and when the psychiatrist said that to me, it like kind of set off the light um, signing with Cleveland. I thought I could overcome it, but, you know, I, I think I did everything that I was supposed to do to make the team and they sent me down and I'm like, okay, I'll just go do what I did in Toronto. And then, you know, in April, I, I went through like this feel bad for me moment. Cause like every time I lined out, I was like, well, I had to like, I had to like try to live up to this expectation I had set for myself. And I knew that if I didn't, people were going to call me into question. Right. So like every time you're hitting 270 in AAA, you're like, well, somebody's going to say you suck and you cheated and that's why you can't hit anymore. So living with that burden was incredibly difficult. Um, I had no fun in color in, in Columbus, zero, like none. Um, I needed to get out of there because the environment wouldn't allow me to be 
myself and, and Colorado Springs was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I had new guys, new relationships, um, different things. Um, and finally, like I kind of let go a little bit. I, and I, I remember I had this moment on the field where I, uh, I, I looked, I, I, <laughs> I kind of looked up to the sky. It was over two to start again in Las Vegas, in Las Vegas. And, uh, I looked up to the sky when I was on defense and I was hitting probably like two thirty. And I, um, I said, man, this is how you want me to go out, huh? Like I gave everything to this game. This is how you want me to go out. And then my next about a homer and my next about a doubled. And I got to second base and I remember looking up again and going, well, you're pretty funny. And it was like the moment, like, again, defining moments where I just kind of like said, you know what, it is what it is at this point. I'm going to just play and see if I can have fun. And then I, you know, got to be around guys like Tyler Heineman, Brett Phillips, Kirk Neuenheis, uh, Kyle Wren, Nate Orff, um, just really good dudes that, you know, made it easy for me to show up at the park and, and be part of a team. And we were we were the, the most a team I had been part of in AAA other than that first 2013 team. Um, so, yeah, I think I got it back a little, but certainly not to the same extent. And And maybe in a good way where I was like, even more immune to the bad stuff that can happen in baseball um, and just recognized that I was good and it didn't matter what my numbers said in any given moment. And uh, I think I got better because of it. And I think I could, I would be better now because I'm, I'm much more detached from the game than I was before in the sense, like I don't, I, I just don't take over four personally anymore. You know, Usually the one of the last questions I have is like, what was the linchpin in, in deciding to retire? I'm going to ask, what was the linchpin in deciding to walk away and stop playing? Because you you don't sound super retired. Well, I haven't retired yet. So that's kind of like I, I have never handed my papers. I still my agent still reaches out to teams on basically I, I know nobody's going to sign me, but like. I know I can still play. Uh, I was going to go do Team USA last year and then in normal Chris Colabella fashion, we went to do our COVID entrance tests and apparently I had COVID. So I wasn't even to do the, the pre-Olympic qualifier stuff. And because of that, they couldn't put me on the team. Um, the one thing I won't do is go play independent ball. Cause I, I've done that. I've been there and I've done it. And I know I can, I can perform at that level probably in my sleep. So like, what am I going to do at 38, go play indie ball just to, you know, pass the time. But if somebody wanted to, Somebody wanted to give me 500 at bats. I'm pretty sure 300 with production is going to show up. So there's, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't have doubts about it. I, I take it bats from time to time. I hit off, a, you know, <laughs> a couple college guys that are going to the Cape the other day. I rolled off my couch 12 months away from an at bat and hit a couple rockets. And I told him, I said, you guys don't want none of this, you know, and I'm a much more confident version of myself. And now granted they're, you know, draft picks and guys that don't have as much experience and you know they're throwing they're chucking it pretty good but i know i can hit and i, I will always be a hitter um nobody's ever going to take that away from me and like look you know more so than anything i feel i feel bad that i don't get an opportunity to do it while i still can because at some point i probably won't be able to but who knows when that day is going to be but i had the best comp of my life ever made uh the other day john andrioli who uh I think he's with the Twins now, actually. Back or no, he's with uh, the Nationals. Is the Nationals? I, can't, I, don't, I don't. I can't keep track anymore. He started the year in Lehigh Valley. Worcester kid uh, works out at the same place I do in the offseason. He said, 
you and Tom Brady, the only two guys that get better as you get older as athletes. And I said, on that one, I can, I can take that one to my grave, man. So that, that one was pretty cool. Cause I'm, my wife's doing like these health food bikini competitions. So I'm eating healthy foods and really good shape doing cardio. And like and people have seen me, they're like, you look better now than you did before. I was at Fenway the other day. Poppy saw me, talked to Alex Cora, all the guys. Man, dude, you're actually in such good shape. I'm like, well, I got a competition at home. Gotta, You're on fight. the TB12 so, method. Yeah, I well maybe I I just revere the ground that guy walks on. So I mean, any any comparison to him is pretty outstanding. So if you could give yourself a pep talk when you're 21, I guess right when you signed with Wooster, what would that pep talk look like? Pay attention to everything. Be aware. Be aware of everything you do. Be be intentional. Be deliberate and. uh and build your armor every day. Like your armor, it, you know, I look at the guys like Brady and Jeter and, and Jordan, and, and the thing that stands out to me about them, about how great they are, is they've, they've, they've built a wall around them. And inside that wall is them and winning, and nothing else matters. Like for all the crap that those guys caught and all the negativity that came to them, and it came to them in different forms than it did to me, and certainly they were already superstars at the time, but um you know tom brady came back from his suspension and was the best player on the field and and i've watched man in the arena 15 times and i wish i had in my eight-year-old <laughs> i wish i had more of that at an early age i was too i was too emotional vulnerable um i cared too much I, and, and not i don't mean about the game i still care about the game the same way i just i cared too much about the peripheral stuff that really at the end of the day doesn't matter because it, it affected me. It hurt me to be looked down upon or looked at in a certain way. And um, that is the stuff that I wish the 21 year old me knew because I think it could have been, it could have been even, even better than it was. I, 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 I know that there were times when I, you know, I went to some bad places, whether it be in double A big leagues or whatever. And, um, yeah, that's what I think that's what the great ones really do is they have the ability to detach from everything else and really protect themselves from all the bad stuff and just focus on the game. And uh, that's what I do now. And it's funny because like I went to do the Team Italy stuff a couple of years ago and I'm just much more prepared to handle all the bad stuff. So that's what I want the 21 year old version of me to know. I got a rapid fire for you and then I'll let you get out of here. Sure. Favorite indie ballpark? Rockland. Uh, Rockland Boulders. I've heard I've heard good things about that. Yeah. Uh, f- favorite minor league ballpark? Worcester. Now I don't get to play there, but it's uh, it's beautiful. Uh, Polar Park. I've heard. Yeah. Uh, f- favorite big league ballpark? Toronto, Rogers Center. Thought that was going to be the one. Uh, best pitcher you ever faced? Chris Hill is my like arch nemesis. Uh, and him and David Price are in a tie for like least comfortable at bats for me two for 13 with like eight punches against one and like seven against the other one. But I, interesting. I got, they're, bo- I got they're both, both left-handed. Yeah. I, I'm a weird righty. I'm like a left-handed righty. I'm weird. It's strange. I like righty sinker ballers. It's like very weird. Uh, you know, Kelvin Herrera is uncomfortable. Uh, Annabelle Sanchez like gives me nightmares at night. Uh, it's weird. I'm weird. Like kryptonite guys. Um, yeah. Strange. Uh, what is your Italian food go-to dish? And I'm talking like real Ital- Italy Italian food, not like 
στρότσα πρέτη, στρότσα πρέτη, πάνα προσούτο, no, πάνα σαλσίτσα φούγγι, or προσούτο φούγγι. So it would be, στρότσα πρέτη, it's called choke the priest in Italian. It's like a, it's a little bit thicker, like not, I, I hate using the word noodle, but it's like a, It's not a penne. It's like it's more of a gnocchi, but it's like a little bit longer and, and flatter. Um, the best pasta by far. And then with panna is like a cream sauce. And by the way, Alfredo is not a real thing in Italy. It's just cream sauce. It's called panna. And then uh, uh, salsiccia, sausage, and, and mushrooms. Or prosciutto is prosciutto and, and uh, mushrooms. It's my favorite mom dish. I cannot stress like highly enough that if you can make it over to Italy go because the food is incredible uh favorite italian city i gotta say rimini where i grew up man it's the best beach town on the planet like i it's just it's awesome i it's uh un, underrated by the general population i think last question everyone gets this one do you have a nightmare bus ride story from either indie ball or the minor leagues and you, you cannot heard, you, you, you cannot use the already. you cannot use it we need we need a different one All right, I have a nightmare bus story. So I'm playing the Mexican Winter League. So I, you didn't give me winter ball, but I'm going to use it. Okay, yeah, um, that'll count. And I didn't, I didn't want to fly. I hated flights. I hated early morning flights. So the PCL was like a nightmare for me. Um, so in Mexico, if you took a flight, you took the morning flight day of game. So I'm playing Guasave, and they go, "Hey, uh, you can take the bus and then fly back home after the series for the, you know, for the off day or whatever." Or sorry, we had an off day and you could fly back home. You'd be home the next night uh, or the next day with the team. So I decided to leave Sunday night with Monday off to go to Mexicali because it's going to get me there Monday night. It's like an 18-hour bus ride. Now, the bus for the Algodoneros de Guasave is like kind of beat down, like maybe like overflowing toilet, whatever. But on the way there, you're like, there's nobody on the bus. It's like me and two other guys and like, five coaches so it's cool you get all the room in the world um what ended up happening was you know there were no power outlets and nothing, so you, you run out of your devices the the, the next the, the series ends and they're like hey you uh we didn't get you a flight you're taking the bus back so i had to get on the bus at 11 p.m after the game ended and we took off and it's a you know 16 hour 17 hour ride uh No, it was pretty grimy. Uh, it was pretty bad. And then multiple other rides in that league when the toilet broke and you had a long ride and you needed to pee and like you had to go like stand in a puddle to pee to go to the bathroom. Those were not fun. Absolute nightmare zone. Chris Colabello, this has been awesome. I appreciate you giving me this much time. Thank you so much for coming on from Phenom to the Farm. You got it, man. And that's it for today's episode. Big thanks to Chris Colabello for taking the time, sharing his career journey with us. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Episodes come out every other Tuesday. Be sure, tune into Baseball America, especially over these next two weeks. We've got the draft coming up, futures game, a lot of good stuff. We'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.